Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Social Media and Politics Podcast, bringing you expert insights into how social media is changing the political game. I'm your host, Michael Bassetta, Assistant Professor in Communication and Media at Lund University. Remember, you can follow the show on Twitter at SMNP Podcast or visit us on the web at socialmediaandpolitics.org. All right, so here we are, finally, for the seventh annual Social Media and Politics Year in Review with my guest. Regular listeners will know that there is only one guest for the Year in Review, and that is Dr. Anna Maria Duchek-Segestin, Reader in Strategic Communication at Lund University. Dr. Duchek-Segestin, welcome back to the seventh annual Year in Review. The highlight of my entire December month is this year in review, so I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for coming back, and uh, I don't know about you, but for me this year was an absolute doozy. For me this year has been so full of things to come, and that I'm afraid this episode might be on par with last year's episode, which itself was pretty long. Every year. Every year we try to make it short. Um, but I think, I think in this case, it actually might be. Part of the reason, as maybe some of the listeners can hear, is I'm getting over a cold. So uh, that <laughs> that is not just maybe affecting my voice a little bit, but also uh, I'm a bit foggy headed. So uh, I, I hard to believe, hard to believe. I'm sure you'll pull a very good uh, game on this for this particular episode, Michael. Well, let's see. So for the new listeners who have just joined us this year, the idea with this year in review podcast is to give you some material to work your way through as you're going through airports, as you're going home. Here's some podcast material to listen to, maybe if you just want to get away from the family for a bit over the holidays. But uh, the format is that we give three gifts each to you, the listener, gifts that are something we thought was interesting in the past year or something that might be worth looking into going forward. Yeah, exactly where you are. Social media and politics Santa Claus is, basically. <laughs> indeed, indeed. So shall we just move through to the first gift? I think you will have the honor of opening the bag of gifts. Yes, which I think has come somewhat of as, as a tradition is to do the general overview of social media platforms and their year in review reports. Yes, every year, even though it's like it's supposed to be repetitive, it actually never is, except for Ariana Grande, which maybe is one common thread. There are few things that survive. Oh, I did not look up who the Spotify listeners are listening to. Oh. <laughs> not this year, but there are some general. Uh, I did this in November, and um, oh well, I think she was on there. It, it, it the dissonance between. Uh, my style of music, I know we have a, a similar uh, interest in heavy metal, <laughs> and between the audience of this podcast is a constant source of, uh, of uh, entertainment for me. <laughs> yes. So, without further ado, let us move through. The Which one is going to be your first platform in review? Well, first, the state of the podcast. Oh. Um, this year, there were approximately 25,000 downloads to the podcast, so thank you all well for, done. for listening. Uh, 17 episodes plus this one for 18 in total. That's more shy of my goal of 24 than usual. So uh, it has been a busy year. But yeah, overall, the podcast chugs along. I hope you all have enjoyed the content put out this year. I know it's been a bit irregular, but uh, yeah, working on it. Podcasts are 
again, maybe not as trending as it used to be like the keyword, but I think they're steady going. There uh, are 850 million active podcasts at the moment. Did you say million? 850 million. Oh my God. So how high ranked is social media and politics? Yeah, these, these stats, they're, 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 they're so non-transparent. You have no idea what's happening. Uh, you have no idea what's happening with them. But if you get over something like 450 downloads an episode, you're in the top 5%-ish or 10%. Something so like that. everyone who listens, let it be known, you're in the top 5% listening crowd around the world. That's yeah, great. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that, that speaks more about the sheer number of, of, of podcasts, but uh, I think the listeners tune in for uh, a, a good slice of, of niche content, which uh, I hope to keep putting out. Do you have a geographical distribution? Geographical distribution, um, I tried to pull it just for one year, yeah. but it's just uh, in general. I don't have it in front of me, but it's uh, it's US, UK, um, Germany, uh, Netherlands is up there, Sweden's up there, Denmark's up there. These actually follow quite closely the overall like popularity of podcasts by country. Yeah. So I suppose where people listen to podcasts, they'll find their way to the social media and politics podcast. Indeed, indeed. That's kind of generally how it breaks down. So let's get into the uh, the year in review reports, which generally takes quite a bit of time, but I think it won't be so, so long this year. Um, Probably because they don't publish their results? No, a lot of them don't. And that's interesting. So so one of the, the sort of kind of running threads throughout thinking about what are these like year in review reports that these uh, these platforms publish, and we've talked about this before in, in another year in reviews, is that it's a way to look at the kind of discursive positioning of these platforms. What are they trying to promote about themselves? And then what are they trying to sort of hide about themselves? It's strategic communication. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's start with the meta umbrella. Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, etc. Facebook, interestingly, used to have a very nice year in review report. Um, and I think this is the second year in a row that they've done this, is that they don't have a year in review report. Instead, if you go and you kind of look between the lines, you'll find that they publish a protecting people from online threats in 2022 <laughs> report. Well, what a spin. What a spin. So again, this kind of discursive positioning, right? They're not telling you what's the most popular stuff on the platform. Instead, they're saying, look at how many threats we protected this year. Want to try to find something they're good at, mm -hmm. right? And so I think one concrete gift that, uh, that, that is part of this uh, digging through all this material is that uh, in the episode description, you'll have links to all these reports. So you can go and, and sort of follow them up in more detail if you'd like. So I'm only going to go over the kind of top line stuff. So in this protecting people from online threats in 2022, this is specifically for Facebook. They talk about how they've taken down over 200 covert influence operations since 2017. So not just this year. Uh, in nearly 70 countries that operated in more than 40 languages. So I didn't really go into the ins and outs of you know, what they took down in terms of uh, influence operations, but they have this interesting point looking ahead. And they say that uh, as larger tech platforms continue to, to catch these influence operations sooner, we expect threat actors to keep targeting smaller, less resource services. Information sharing among researchers, industry, and government will be all the more critical to help expose these networks. I must have a sarcastic laugh like, ha, 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 ha. 
uh, information sharing with researchers? Is that what Meta is actually putting out there? Because this has been a point of contention for a while between the academic community, not just like myself and this particular platform conglomerate, the fact that they're so opaque to researchers and so complicated to get access into. Exactly. So I think that's kind of a little bit of a double (laughs) double face there. But I think it's interesting that also one of the things they say to look ahead for is that uh, these threat actors are going to move to smaller platforms. So kind of get off our backs, you know. Don't blame it on me. It was TikTok. Indeed. So that's basically what I had for Facebook. There was not much. Um, no accounts. No nothing. No no cool data. They did. They did talk about you know their various uh, initiatives, but um, to summarize, to, to not go into the weeds. Yeah. I think the interesting part is that they're putting out threat reports instead of you know talking about how how many mentions there were during the Super Bowl and Women's Day and the things they used to talk about. A pity, I may say. A pity, which extends into Instagram as well. So Instagram, as far as I could find, had no sort of year in review report, but they did have a 2023 trend report. So looking forward, and this was specifically focused on a survey of Gen Z users. So 1,200 people aged 16 to 24 in the US. And so this is really just focused on what are the trends going ahead for Gen Z? And they asked these respondents to sum up 2023 in one word. So next year. Their expectations. The year of the rabbit. Um, And their top responses were healing, energized, and main character energy. What is that? I don't know. I guess these people are youthful. and uh, (laughs) Whatever that means. Yeah. So energy, I think, is kind of the, the key thing. Healing and energy. So this report talked a lot about Gen Z being, you know, frugal and shopping at thrift stores as a trend, for example. But I picked out two things that were explicitly political and one kind of bonus. And one was taking action, that Gen Z will shop to support causes that they care about because Gen Z is an activist generation. This is that something fits yeah. fits with what we know from other sources and other platforms. And this is something that will just reoccur over these platform year in review sort of reports is that Gen Z is activist. They're thinking about things like climate and activism when they're purchasing products. And of course, these platforms are trying to connect marketers to uh, to Gen Z. So one thing they say is that from their survey is that Gen Z voters think the country needs more Gen Z politicians. That's a that would be a welcoming trend, which is something to look forward to, or sort of keep in mind um, as we move into future years. And they also point out that in 2022, Maxwell Frost became the first Gen Z politician elected to the U.S. Congress. No idea who that is, but apparently she's young. Mm, or he. Or they. Or they. <laughs> Apropos Gen Z, because wokeness is another key thing that is associated with with Gen Z. I guess we'll talk more about that. Definitely, um, disability advocacy is a leading issue for them. For example, so definitely one one trend that that Instagram is trying to highlight is that Gen Z uh, takes action, political action, also in how they buy um, beauty products. So another trend they pointed out was climate and expressive beauty. And, uh, you know, they say for Gen Z, makeup and beauty products are a form of self-expression, which I think all sort of makeup and beauty products are. Um, But they're sort of making the argument that Gen Z are looking to buy skincare that protects against extreme weather and sun because they're sort of worried about climate change. That's kind of the argument. Uh I thought that they meant they would purchase, um, how can I say, climate-friendly cosmetics such as those that are... uh, 
possibly easy to recycle or come from um, environmental friendly sources. Yeah, you would think so. That would and, and that that would resonate with me, but maybe I'm not representative of this sample. That might have been in there as another one of these these trends. But what they're highlighting here is that. Uh, For example, issues like raising air pollution and intense UV rays are driving searches for climate-proof products. Protection. I think it's a a kind of a, I don't know, sounds a bit dire to think that young people today need to think always about how to protect themselves from natural elements. Yeah, I thought this was a bit of a, a kind of ridiculous trend. I mean, I'm sure they're looking for things like everyone's looking for sunscreen, right? But... I don't know, maybe from what they're alluding to, like Gen Z is looking for extreme SPF because of climate change. Yeah, I just heard there's 16, it used to be 50. But it's interesting if this would have any political bearing in the sense that Gen Z would vote, like they would purchase, let's say, like if their purchase patterns, which are identified in this Instagram report, would, uh, would translate into some voting pattern for people that would be the equivalent of, you know, pro or a climate aware measures and so on. It'll mm. be interesting to see if that's a trend yeah. over the years. I, I think that's that's sort of built into that, like at least how, how these platforms are talking about Gen Z, this taking action type of yeah. type of trend. So those are basically the two only ones that broadly, directly or indirectly related to politics. Um, the third sort of bonus one I, I wanted to talk about is uh, they're trying to, to highlight that Instagram is the new dating app. What? So they say that, you know, in 2023, Gen Z plans to use platforms like Instagram for dating and connections because DMs and messaging offer more transparent, honest and direct communication than dealing with the swiping left and swiping right. I have to say like, oh, really? I can just have so many critical comments to this particular um, yeah, suggestion that the Instagram is, but I don't think it's a, it's a place for social media and politics. I'm, I'm not sure that this is what is happening on Instagram. No, but again, I mean, and who knows what's happening with, with Gen Z, honestly, but I think that um, this is, you know, again, Instagram trying to say, like, we can also be a Tinder too yeah. in their positioning. So really not much for, to say for Instagram, unfortunately, but... Um, no top accounts, no... No, none of that stuff. None of that stuff. None of the top mentioned politicians. Um, but worth pointing out is that almost all of these year interview reports end up until the end of October, and then they take November to, to write them up. But I can say that I saw that Zuckerberg posted the other day that um, Messi's World Cup post... Um, I don't know exactly what that was, but it was the most liked in Instagram history. In Instagram history? That's according to Mr. Zuckerberg himself. And he also mentioned that WhatsApp also reached a record 25 million messages per second. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Well, it was a it is a phenomenon. I watched that game and it was truly a game of kings. Mm. A game of kings was beautiful. A true showmanship mm-hmm. and um, definitely one for the ages. So definitely that reflects into the social media conversation and, and it's just natural that it should be so. As an American who just in my in my genes, uh, I, I can't enjoy the sport. Uh, I'm glad that uh, that Messi uh, got his, his World Cup title. Um, so that's it for Instagram and that's it for WhatsApp. Nothing for WhatsApp either. 
this is why this episode may not be as long as previous episodes <laughs> because uh, this there's not so much to comment on except absences. Perhaps. And on that note, Twitter, there was nothing probably because the people who typed up the report got fired. So next, moving <laughs> exactly. on to Google, the year in search. Yes, this so, tends to be quite fun. Yeah, so, so this, um, every year Google does a sort of what is the word that defined the year? So I think a year or two ago, it was the year of why during Corona. Like, why is this happening? Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, this year was the year of change. Okay. Changing oneself, changing careers, evolving, positive change. And you can sort of see, you can look around and see what are the top searches in the US, top searches worldwide. They used to have top search politicians, which Trump would, would win, you know, hands down. That's gone. Again, like there's like there's like not much politics in these year in review reports anymore. Um, but interestingly, the top searches in the, the the number one top search in the U.S. and the number one top search worldwide are the same. Can you guess it? Honestly, I can only think about the football cup, but probably it's not that. Wordle. Wordle, really? Wordle wins both in U.S. and uh, worldwide searches. I'm a fan. <laughs> I'm a big Wordle fan. So is my mom. I love it. I love it. I played every day rather, con yeah, rather consistent. Did you ever get it on the first try? Yeah. All right. How many times? Not so many. Maybe five. Top. Okay. That's respectable. Because there are some pretty good words. So actually, what does this mean? Does this mean people are trying to search for what the Wordle word <laughs> is of the day? Maybe that's what it is. Also, like... There's different strategies and so on. Yeah. Ah, yeah. Like how, like how to think about Wordle. And there's a Wordle bot. Lots of, like, would give you tips. And I must, I mean, just as a side comment, um, it's interesting because it makes people think about language patterns. Like, for example, which word, which, excuse me, which letters are most common to the English language? Mm -hmm. Vowels, of course. Vowels, but also of the consonants, which one? Like S, T, T D. Yeah, but that's maybe because, I mean, Americans know this because of uh, Wheel of Fortune. Well, again, some Americans, but maybe not everyone. So not maybe Gen the general Z, Z exactly. And so people are trying to think like, well, how can I, how can I write words that include these meaningful combinations of very common um, vowels and consonants that would give me a good clue, at least to win it in second time. Yeah. So first, first trial is just luck. Second time could be a pretty good, um, pretty good informed choice. But I can also comment on this because I'm such a Wordle geek, am I, that uh, recently the New York Times hired a person that's specifically working with Wordle. Before it was more automated, mm -hmm. now there is an actual person whose job is to create this in a complicated way. So uh, you have to think also about this when you solve the puzzle, that the easy solution is probably unlikely to be the one chosen. Let me make a note to come back to some of the uh, the New York Times uh, puzzle makers in the context of anti-Semitism. Don't let me forget that oh, because wow. that's a uh, an interesting one. But um, to keep going through the um, platforms in review. the platform stats. So what's interesting? I'm just looking at the kind of figure here I have in front of me. Is that when you look at the top searches in the U.S. and the top searches worldwide, what's very clear is that when you include the worldwide element, it's almost dominated by India. Um, so it's interesting that Wordle still maintains its top um, 
top status, despite the inclusion of the, the Indian subcontinent. And, English speaking. Yeah, and, and that'll become uh, clearer in a second. But first, let's go through the top searches in the US where there is a bit of politics. So number one was Wordle. Number two was election results. Excellent. Go, looking at the um, 2022 midterms, which sort of affirms this idea that people go to Google to search for information. Which is also very funny that midterms used to be such a no event. Yeah, like nobody cared. And this year, I think, in the U.S., everybody cared. And even people outside the U.S. cared. I saw actually a funny tweet at the time before before Elon Musk tweet, uh, when uh, I think it was a British account who was saying like, if you ask persons to name the finance minister or the chancellor uh, 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 of the bursary for, for the UK, nobody would be able to tell you. But if you ask them about that particular district in Georgia where uh, everything is gonna be relying on, they can name it and they can name the problems and they can name the candidates in that absolutely minute community. Because the midterm mobilized the imagination and the passions of people way beyond the U.S. borders. Yeah, and, and even they—I they, know both of both of us listen to this uh, the sort of economist podcast circuit, and, yeah. and they said the same thing about the the, the Supreme Court. Like you can name the judges in the Supreme Court, but you know, even someone who's an editor of of at the Economist cannot name one judge on the the British equivalent, right? <laughs> like it's uh, it's kind of funny. Um, so yeah, I mean, these elections, maybe there was something to them because people were so concerned about all the candidates like Carrie Lake who were, you know, going with this kind of election uh, fraud and sowing distrust and whatnot. But at least good to know that there was some politics somewhere. Other top searches in the U.S. Uh, number three, Betty White, who I believe died this year. She was a golden girl and a very well-known <laughs> Very well-known actress. Uh, Queen Elizabeth, number four. Yes. Bob Saget, number five, another dead uh, celebrity. Six, Ukraine. Only six? Only six. Um, seven and eight, mega millions and Powerball numbers. The lottery. Yes. Crossing one billion this year. My gosh. And then nine and ten, Anne Hesh and Jeffrey Dahmer or Damer. I don't know who either of those people are. Me neither. All right. Then going over to top searches worldwide, when we include the Indian subcontinent, we have Wordle. Number two, India versus England. Three, cricket, cricket. Yes. Three, Ukraine. Four, Queen Elizabeth. Five, India versus South Africa. Six, World Cup. Seven, India versus West Indies. Eight, iPhone fourteen. Nine, Jeffrey Dahmer or Dahmer. This must be a very important person. I know. I'm, my my pop culture knowledge is showing. And uh, ten, Indian Premier League. So clearly, a lot, a lot of, of sports mm. overall. I think it's interesting. Like game. Wordle and sports yeah. seems mm -hmm. to be what people can be interested in on a regular basis, but not so much politics. So they have, they always put together this nice little video of, of the year of change. And so uh, if you want to follow the link and, and check that out, um, it doesn't make much sense if, in a podcast to, to, to play it. If, if you can't see the kind of images, it shows yeah. uh, Lizzo and like uh, just, yeah, people, viral clips that we've seen and people, people changing themselves. Picking up and moving somewhere new and starting a new life, you know. Evolve, right? You were just saying that was the key word. That is it, like a Pokemon. All right, so moving on to TikTok. Two things with TikTok. One is they do a kind of year in review, and then another is the forward trends, just like Instagram. Okay. Which I think is both actually a copy of Pinterest predicts, which we'll also uh, <laughs> get to. But in terms of TikTok year in review, really nothing of substance to, uh, to report here. Um, what they try to say, I mean, in terms of politics, right? Mm. Uh, TikTok is a place for entertainment, but also a place for learning. 
um, learning how to par- carve a pumpkin. I remember seeing that that video actually because it went around on, on Twitter. How to interact with disabled people. A lot of woke stuff. Um, you know how to deal with um, overcoming problems of accessibility, transgender, calling out misogyny. They highlight that as well as just a lot of you know a lot of How simple to. nonsense. Yeah, learning, education, and they also talked about being a place for authentic self-expression, aided by the design of the platform, such as sounds, filters. That's a very interesting point that I think I will return to in not too many minutes from here. Uh, I, think, a I hint, guess a hint, a hint. So they also. Um, Let's look at this trends ahead report, which is really meant for marketers, and it's a, it's a kind of way to to bring marketers to the platform to say, look what we can you par- offer you if yeah. you partner with us, what we can do for you. And they had three trends: actionable entertainment, making space for joy, and community built ideas. What's the first one? Actionable entertainment. So for each of these, they sort of reported the results of an uh, I don't know if it was an internal survey or or, or what, but it was like. Here's what TikTok users are saying, positive about our platform. And then here's how some marketer partnered with us and generated money. I mean, that's basically what these are all built around. So actionable entertainment, they said that four out of five users um, report TikTok is very or extremely entertaining. So this led Elf Cosmetics to partner with their ad agency and, of course, TikTok's own marketing partner, Tenuity. To provide in-feed ads that were also entertaining and doubled spending on their cosmetics month on month. Wow! So actionable, actionable, actionable. Like you pur- purchase, purchase in app. This is what also Instagram is doing, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's all huge marketing company. Exactly, and so this is definitely a trend report for marketers. So that kind of makes sense. Number two, making space for joy. Ninety percent of users say the platform makes them happy. And EA Sports, or sorry, EA Games, a video game company, did some type of campaign to get people to sing like Sims characters from the popular Sims, <laughs> uh, presumably making people feel happy. I don't know what they were trying to say with that. Amused, yeah. I think. It's the outcome. Uh, the third was community-built ideas. And they're trying to this say... This could be political. Mm, wait till you see where this is going. Uh, TikTok communities are specific, they argue. And TikTok is 1.8 times more likely to introduce people to new topics they didn't know they liked relative to traditional mainstream platforms. Correct. And eBay, of course, in partnership with TikTok, had a campaign asking sneakerheads, people who like sneakers, to vote on different sneakers. And that drove comment engagement up 54%. So the community being sneaker, and there's apparently a sneaker talk. There's a talk for pretty much anything, I suppose. Indeed. So. I know there's something about book talk, if I may comment very briefly. Again, a more geeky subject, as it suits me. Um, but uh, one thing that was noticeable in this book talk, I'm not on TikTok, by the way, uh, but it transpires from communication elsewhere that old books, books from the 90s, books from the early 2000s, got popular because of TikTok book talk, so to say, is hashtag, uh, people com- commenting and liking the books and making kind of a pitch for why these books have value today. And so you can look at book sales and the trends of book sales, and you can see that it's not just what the marketing sections of book publishers push forward, but also what kind of 
TikTok influencers or this kind of TikTok community, to use the word, pushed forward books that were almost out of print, books that were uh, connected to subjects that perhaps were not very trendy today, but that were revived with the help of such discussions. So it seems to really have an effect on, on purchasing trends from cosmetics to books, perhaps to other things as well. Absolutely. And I think that's, you know, I mean, in a sense, it's almost just a, a question of scale as well. I mean, there's just, there's almost a talk for anything, anything. And, and, you know, if that leads to money, then, uh, Wait, what I wanted to highlight that this, like partnerships, as you highlight, obviously place new products that are ready to be marketed today. But the book talk example showed that even products that are not aggressively promoted by any particular publishing house or author still can be actually growing quite significantly just on the basis of popular demand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no, I see it. And I think what the, the point of this this trends report is to say is, hey, you marketers, get into this space. Yeah. Selling shoes and, and whatnot. So that's it. That's TikTok. <laughs> that's TikTok. Well, again. Despite the fact that uh, we saw there was a, the one particular clip of... Uh, the politician from Florida, I think it was, I uh, could be wrong on that, but like sort of takes a drop down and like, like there were some good political TikToks uh, this year. Politicians are on TikTok, but there's also some uh, rules about political content that make, um, make politicians not go trending. Um, and maybe this is slightly off your particular stats, but I can tell you from the Swedish example that I've been recently uh, trying to examine that politicians prefer to use the services of TikTok influencers in order to gain traction about their particular ideas and platforms. Mm -hmm. As TikTok does not allow political advertisements, so you cannot buy space for TikTok. So you got to go through a host. You have to go to through someone that already enjoys some form of privileged position there. But there is politics on TikTok. It's just a question of how to capture that. Mm -hmm. This is something we'll return to at the very end of the episode, but is very important. Um, so, but it could be it could be a way to say that the statistics provided by TikTok, not necessarily just because they want to present themselves as attractive for marketers, but also because it's difficult to detect such things. It's not really like tracking accounts. The same account that promote politics today can promote sneakers the other day. Yeah. So um, it's difficult to really look at it simply from a network dimension. Mm -hmm. You'll have to look at content. Yeah. Yeah. And this is really important for you know, the, 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 the sort of traditional model of looking at uh, what are actual campaign accounts advertising and posting is, is really less and less where the, the politics is. Indeed. But I guess more to that later. So more stay to that tuned. Later and, and stay tuned for that because that's some cool stuff that's blowing my mind at the moment. But um, let's go into Pinterest predicts. Yes. Pinterest. Um, which is uh, really interesting. I learned, more, and we'll talk more about this also in the in the show. Um, that some of my students did a project on on Pinterest, and I learned a lot about it. And they explicitly say, like, as you sign up for the platform, like, we don't do politics here. It is not. It is not happening. But they do have their their trend report, Pinterest predicts, and I think this is actually what TikTok and this Instagram trends report is is actually copying. Pinterest. When you read this report, they are really aggressive in saying, like, 
we get 80% of our trends right. And we and we we make sure we follow up and we check and we we are sure that our, our trends are, are done rigorously. And so what they do, and it's quite impressive actually, uh, if you read the methodology, is that they have this like multi-step flow where they monitor trending searches over the course of the year and they normalize it so that you know, they make sure that Christmas doesn't pop up yeah, as no a trend. event dominates. Exactly. And so they take about 500,000 searches. They group them into trends during an intensive insights making week. So they have a week dedicated to this. Um, and they vet them for, first, compliance with Pinterest values of being inclusive. That means globally relevant and representative among different users. And test their hunches, test their hunches against qualitative focus groups. So they, so they sort of group things together and they sort of bring in users and they say, you know, do you th- think this is a trend? Mm-hmm. And so they're out there claiming eight out of 10 trends we call come true three years in a row thanks to our robust methodology analysis. Which is quite impressive. So what are the trends? So there were 27 trends they've identified this year. If you remember last year, it was things like architecture. So designing your house to be, you know, more friendly to your dog and kind of highlighting areas they can hang out. This year, one example, for example, was mushrooms. What can that mean? So like their argument is for this particular trend is that like people during lockdown had to make their living spaces more creative because they, you know, were going nuts basically. So they got into sort of like, uh, they call it weird core. But like um, searches for mushroom decor. So I'm guessing that's things like black light posters and sort of, um, okay. you know, All right. feng shui towards the, towards the hippie. Um, searches like mushroom decor and weird core are up. Um, and like, so, so you, I'll, I'll link to the report and you can go see it. It's, it's very cool how they design the, the interface. And you can Do you have pictures that illustrate these trends? In, in they they do it in a way that all the trends are sort of presented in a similar okay, you know cool. in the kind of like top level designers working mm-hmm. at, especially at Pinterest right um, so they say that uh, you know it's a maximalist form of self expression that will only continue to rise in the year ahead uh, mushrooms other trends were things like train travel will increase they're seeing um, more searches for Eurorail yay rave culture will increase uh, two toned hair having two different color hairs we've seen that a bit I think here in Sweden at least where I live, in Malmo. <laughs> and um, so they have a bunch of these trends, nothing explicitly political, except maybe for train travel and climate. But uh, feel free to go check out those uh, those trends. Any thoughts? Um, no. Let's, let, let's save some space for later on. But just to say the methodology sounds pretty cool. And I like that they are transparent on this particular point in contrast with the above mentioned <laughs> uh, platforms that completely lack that transparency, even yeah. though they're so big. And of course they wouldn't invest resources in this unless that helped them bring in marketers and revenue, right? I think that's a, that's a key, key selling point for them. Yeah. And I, I think it's interesting that Instagram and TikTok seem to be taking that model on board with their year in review reports. Though less grounded in methodology by what I hear. Right. Instagram was a cross-sectional survey and uh, blah, blah, blah. Reddit. The Reddit recap. Yes. But uh, which That I was, should be a stable one. I know, but I'm disappointed this year because really um, almost, almost zilch when it comes to politics. The main line was that Redditors kept it real. So it's maybe the keyword <laughs> for the entire year. Yeah. So there was some kind of interesting stuff, just to give you an overview of what's happening on Reddit. Um, one of the things they highlighted was that people are embracing humanness 
in the normalization of mistakes. So for example, the number one most viewed community this year, the number one subreddit was uh, r am I the asshole? Which is where people basically <laughs> is like, am I the asshole? Like, you know, yeah. like, did I do something wrong here? And sort of asking the community for feedback on that, as well as TIFU, today I fucked up, jumped 20 spots to number 27, saying like, people just kind of expressing like, this is what I did. <laughs> Oops. Yeah. And uh, I, I mean, yeah. I'm, well, I'm, it's, I'm accept, sure it's, it's a space of acceptance. Exactly. And, and both the subreddits ask men and ask women. So where people from the opposite uh, sex go in and say like, you know, what would you do if I did, you know, this type? So, so sort of like trying to, in a sense, get some community feedback of what are the social norms yeah. across genders and, and, and maybe just <laughs> in general. Uh, both ask men and ask women jumped up uh, into the number 40 or 50 top top subreddits this year. Concerns, I guess. Yeah. Which also can signal that people have lost their compass in navigating social relations Maybe after the pandemic. Maybe that's what it if is. If they need to ask someone, if they feel unsure, perhaps they, they lost that fine touch. That's a good point. Uh, there was some other stuff, not super interesting. They kind of broke down different categories like animals, food and drink, gaming, fashion. Um, they have this thing called uh, Place, so the subreddit Our Place, which is a four-day project where when it launches, people can go and they can place a tile every five minutes. So you can only place one tile every five minutes. And it's basically like this big collaborative mosaic. Yes, I have seen that previously. It's actually fantastic what people can do together. Yeah, yeah. And once it once they fill it up, then it extends and it keeps going and kind of people paint over each other. And um, that was the most upvoted post with 434,000 upvotes. Wow. That's cool. Uh, the second most upvoted was probably the only political thing, which was a post in um, R Interesting as Fuck. I'm going to have to put the explicit yeah. <laughs> tag on this episode. That uh, the post was basically uh, saying that in 1996, Ukraine handed over nuclear weapons to Russia in exchange for a guarantee never to be threatened or invaded. That's called the Kharkiv Agreement. So... That was posted in this interesting yeah. <laughs> as like, F. Basically, how can you be- can you believe that they they accepted this type of bad deal? Right. Exactly. So more about Ukraine also coming up later on in today's episode. Definitely. So just rounding out the kind of top level stats that they give, uh, Reddit is home to more than one hundred thousand active subreddits, and in twenty twenty two, redditors created four hundred and thirty million posts. 430 million plus posts, uh, a 14% increase year over year, which is impressive given that it was COVID less. I mean, mm-hmm. pe- this, this platform. This is, is where people wanted to discuss stuff. Definitely. And as of November 20, they've seen uh, 2.5 billion total comments on the platform, which is a 7% increase year over year and uh, 24 billion upvotes. Jeremy, I have to say, I mean, besides Reddit, would the volume, the volume of data is impressive. It's, you know, like one of the, one of the things that, uh, define social media is these, these V's, right? Like velocity and variety and volume, right? But these three V's really, really blow your mind if you sit down and think about it. Like all these, like, you know, catchy things like this second, so many uh, YouTube videos were posted, so many TikTok videos were watched, so many... 25, t- during the World Cup, 25 million messages per second on WhatsApp. 
the volume of data is simply insane. And one interesting issue that I have as a researcher is how can we or should we or can we <laughs> literally um, store this data, have access to this data, capture these conversations? Is there anything that we can do to memorialize all these interactions, which are ephemeral in their nature, in their purpose, but it can help us paint a picture about what people in this day and age are concerned about from the bottom up, so to say? Uh, I'm thinking about, um, you know, what was it, Voyager or one of these, uh, you know, a NASA satellite shot into space, and it would it, they'd include like uh, what's the famous album like Elvis or something or oh, it, Beatles, yeah, or Beatles. Like maybe we should just launch a server full of Reddit uh, interesting as fuck comments and see what happens. Here are our peoples in 2022. But imagine the amount of server space, you know. I think yeah. I think the the stored storing this information from Reddit, from Facebook, from any other platform begins to truly be a challenge for the platforms themselves. Yeah. Uh, like, where do you put all this data? How can you sort through it? How can you actually maximize it? Even though your economy, like the economy of the platform, the the business model of the platform, may depend on this data, how can you actually make use of it? Well, I think it, well, I don't know how you can make use of it, but I think it gets to this. What is it, Murphy's law or something, where it's like the computing power just keeps doubling each year and just exponential growth. Yeah, kind of. yeah, it's very interesting to to see this trend and the numbers you described uh, Reddit with just kind of brought this up to my to my attention again. Yeah, and I I don't have um I I didn't they didn't report it, but um I think my my students had had. had Report it in one of their presentations. I, I want to say, and don't quote me on this, but I want to say it's about 300, maybe 400 million users that are generating all of this. Wow. Um, so there's probably something to say that people who sign up to Reddit relative to something like Twitter, who maybe never post, I think Redditors are more in the conversation. I, I would assume so. Um, but uh, t remains to be <laughs> tested. Two more platforms. Two more platforms. Uh, pretty, Which one did you choose? Pretty short. Well, I think whatever one had had these year in review reports. Uh, and I looked for all the, the minor ones as well. Snap. Yes. Snap. And this one was lame. This one was such a lame report. Uh, for example, they reported that the AR lens of the year was crying. Oh. Viewed 9.7 billion times. Billion, you say? Yeah. And this wow. is maybe somehow connected to this like general theme of, of humanizing, right? Or... Uh, or, or, or showing self-expression or something like that. Um, then they reported about some trends emerging after Corona. So the number one tagged location, you know, when you post a, a snap was, uh, yes, it has to do with traveling. Jeez, you put me on the spot. Yeah, kind of unfairly because it's a tough one. <laughs> mm. All right, I'll save you. The, Say. the airport. The airport. Right. Yes. So people were posting, saying we're, you know, snapping, we're, we're in the airport, we're going on our vacation. And where did they actually post from? Big the Ben. The beach. <laughs> <laughs> this is me dreaming. Big Ben, London, uh, St. Paul's Cathedral, Guggenheim Museum, St. Peter's Basilica, and the Empire State Building. So you're kind of general hotspot locations. Western, Western world. Well, snap users. Yeah. You know, so New York, London, Rome, etc. That's it. <laughs> Not the Taj Mahal. No, 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 no. Um, and finally, uh, a tradition on the year Porn in hub. review. Pornhub. 
At least they're transparent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it also connects. It, uh, it's, it's all. It's all. There's a through. There's a story. There. There's a through line here, and because I know mm-hmm. your first gift, it is it is related to that. Um, and this isn't it explicitly, but uh, what they wanted to highlight as the number one year in uh, porn searches was uh, reality. Mm-hmm. And the idea or the argument they're making is that these amateur porn creators are becoming more professionalized. Okay. So people who are looking for sort of amateur homemade porn are finding that the amateurs are becoming more like professionals. <laughs> so now they're looking for a more authentic experience. So doubling or tripling searches uh, were related to things like real amateur homemade which increased 310% in the U.S. and 179% worldwide. Wow. Transgender porn up 7% worldwide. Most viewed category in Brazil. Is transgender? According to Pornhub. Oh, right. Other searches defining the year. Group sex, outdoors, positions, feet, and femdom. Interesting fact here. I love this Pornhub Insights stuff. I think it's so fascinating. That you can just, apropos, what can we make sense what of this data? Of this <laughs> Pornhub data? makes it really explicit. For example, uh, nine minutes and 44 seconds overall is the time spent on the platform, kind of on average. So nine minutes, 54 seconds. Gen Z users, 55 seconds lower, which may relate to that shorter attention span. That <laughs> I'm famous. Um, other interesting things. Phones. Porn on phones. 84% of platform use. Massive. Tablet use decreasing dramatically. Yeah, maybe tablets themselves are kind of going out of fashion. Kind of out of the game. And um, because these are, you know, developed, you know, like I said, towards the end of October, usually when they do these, uh, they did look at the World Cup uh, quarterfinals and saw that traffic dropped, (laughs) except for Australia, which was up 6% during their game with France. (laughs) <laughs> anyway, I'm not going to comment. And this wasn't, this wasn't part of the year interview, but they did do a midterms report uh, to say that um, they saw that relative to your average Tuesday, because the yeah, midterms exactly. were on Tuesday, that uh, porn consumption spikes in the morning. So it was up 12% compared to the average Tuesday at 7 o'clock in the morning, but then drops during the evening when the polls close. So showing this interest between uh, poll results. People are busy elsewhere. Which we saw also in uh, in last in uh, Google. In, in, in general, I think it was in previous years as well. So that's it for the, uh, the year in review stats. I have a couple points here to, to sort of summarize what yes, have we learned. Exactly, I think what in, have we learned. In general, this has just been um, not as interesting to read with a political mindset as they used to be. Which is a bit sad. You have to read into it. Yeah, you do. And what are they not saying? I think that is the, the more interesting part. Um, so not so much social media relating to politics, at least in the sense of like formal party politics, even though, interestingly, that the U.S. had a midterm. So- there were so many interesting elections this year, mm. which would be something that I'm going to try to enumerate just briefly when my turn comes. Yes. But it could have been, you know, a lot of... Politics in focus could have been, but at least the the platforms are are not reporting it. Um, of course, like there's politics on Reddit, right? But it just didn't make it into that report, um, which is interesting because they talk about animals and food and drink and gaming. But um, they could have made a politics category, but they choose not to. Um, like with the platform features that we see, you know, Instagram copying uh, Snap Stories and, and you know trying to copy reels in terms of the features, we see a bit of copycatting, I think, in terms of the format of these reports with Instagram and TikTok trying to copy the the Pinterest trends. I'll have more on this later. (laughs) 
A big focus on Gen Z, maybe for marketing purposes or maybe because they're a key demo, I don't know. And finally, I would say a common thread across the reports was coincidentally your first gift. Q, Q, Q keyword. Yes, and the keyword is authenticity. Authenticity is the theme of 2022 and will continue into 2023. And this is not just me talking, even though it is me talking. This is also the title of an article in the financial magazine Forbes, who pro proclaims the app of the year to be, ta-ta, ta-ta, be real. Keeping it real like the Redditors. Be real. And you, I was very happy that you mentioned this kind of a, along the way in your, in your reports, uh, because that's kind of the keyword real or authentic. And the app that is called Be Real, uh, um, written in one word, um, is kind of epitomizing this, even though it's not the only one to do so. Um, the app was born in 2019, uh, but only picked up in 2022. And maybe one very curious fact about it is that, is that it was one of the first ones of these mega trenders that is born in Europe. France. Exactly. Uh, the French founders Alexis Barria and Kevin Perrault are two, two guys who basically did this app out of spite, out of protest, out of disappointment with mainstream social media, in particular Instagram and Snapchat. Uh, so, in contrast to these other uh, two platforms that use a lot of filters and allow people, in a sense, to transform themselves into an aspirational self. Or a crying blubber, yeah. <laughs> according to Snap. Yeah. Uh, or that. Um, the, uh, the founders say that Be Real is an app where people can be, uh, again, quote-unquote, real and authentic, their own words, uh, which means that they are unfiltered, unedited, spontaneous, caught in the act. Uh, like Instagram used to be like, it's hard to remember this, but the name Instagram, it's connected to the fact that you should have posted an instantaneous snapshot of the pictures. And for many years, I proposed platform um abilities like fun platform functionalities instagram was not allowing you to uh, back locate a, lo a place so if you did not post where you were you could not say oh this picture was in taj mahal india if you were posting it from malmo sweden the yeah. same the same with snap and uploading photos that was a feature they built in after the app it used to be you had to take the picture right there right there yeah and it's so what i wanted to say with this and i think you're already also feeling it is like Many apps before Be Real, including their major competitors to some extent, Instagram and Snapchat, also wanted to brand themselves as authentic and in the moment and real, but eventually had to transform their business model into something different. So we will see what happens. But more about Be Real because it's not a platform that has been featured in the pod before. Mm -hmm. um, and just some basic information for anyone who has not been, uh, you know, in contact with the app before. 
Uh, the app works in a, in a specific way. It sends out a notification at different times of the day, but to everyone at the same time, asking people that are in the platform to post uh, immediately a photo of themselves and of where they are. So it activates both the front and the back camera at the same time, which is an interesting let's cool say, innovation. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and it gives them only two minutes to upload the final product. So you don't have time to fiddle with it and uh, edit and add things if you were to want to do that. So you cannot use another program to filter it. So you have to post it as it happened. And um, if you don't, a notification is sent out to the person's friend saying this person did not comply. Yeah, so it's kind of a, a social punishment mm -hmm. type of um, of principle that is being enforced there. Peer pressure. Yeah, truly. Um, and as I mentioned before, the app has picked up quite recently in 2022. Um, in August and September, it was the number one social networking app in the uh, Apple Store um, in uh, in the US, which is really pointing out what trend. Um, and the population that it gathered, it went beyond the college student crowd, which typically would be attracted to this, uh, and basically uh, expanded to a, a wider societal uh, range because also of some clever, let's say, marketing tricks. I don't know if uh, people know about this, but they had, let's say, an ambassador program. Like you could become a Be Real ambassador and get some perks. And also you could get payments from signing up. So this kind of growth is not just because the app itself had some particular features, but because they were the people were incentivized in various ways to join. Ambassador super real. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's a way to grow your your crowd and that's especially what happened. It grew it grew so much that it has become a feature on Saturday Night Live, and I really want to play uh, a little bit of it and uh, let's see how much of it has space in the overall program. But I think you should uh, you should see this. Um, let's. I'm curious as you pulled this up. Um, I know Be Real has kind of been. I'm not a user, but familiar, but uh, my students have been filling me in on this. And um, I can say from, from what I've learned from them is that the, um, the core team behind this, like the number of people is like 40 that's running this entire uh, operation. So, um, well, then kudos to them. Uh, and I'm going to try uh, to do this so that you can also see just a second. So this is the Saturday night sketch. Let's hit it. I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not calling the police, I swear. Slide it over now or this is we a bank kill robbery. you. I, I want to, but I, I can't. Because it's, it's... What is it? It's time to be real. <laughs> time to be what? Time to be real! Wait, wait, it is? Yeah, I just got the notification. It's time to be real. Okay, everybody shut up! Oh, yeah, or tell us what be real is. <sighs> it's amazing. It's this app that blew up over the summer. It's the only honest social media. You think I'm an idiot? Honest social media doesn't exist. You're so cynical. I was too. But with Be Real, you can only post once a day when the app sends out a notification. So everyone posts a pic at the same time, no matter where they are or what they're doing. Oh, so there's no posturing. Stop engaging. And it's not status-oriented, and that's why it's called Be Real. Yes, yes, you're getting it. Oh! Everybody needs to shit. <laughs> what are you guys 
So that was it. That was it. Um, Be Real made it all the way to the Saturday Night Live. And I think this sketch is capturing, <laughs> capturing the essence of it. And also the inevitable critique. Can we be authentic on social media? Well, my question, I've, I've, I've never understood this. So let's, let's put this to rest now is that you have, you get a notification and then within two minutes you must post. Yes, what, what happens if you, if you're you, taking a shower or something? Well, then you don't post and your friends will get a notification that Michael did not post. And because he was he was at the gym no, or he was on the you'd, phone. <laughs> you'd, have, you'd have to explain yourself later. Oh, I got you. I can add one, despite not knowing the basic <laughs> uh, the basic idea of of be real. Um, I, I can say that that what my students were telling me is that and I forget the exact number, but there's something like um, this is normalized over. I think it was either four or six time zones. So they do break it down. Yeah, like you're not going to put the Europeans in American lunchtime. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, so people in India are getting a different notification. Those exactly. Are... It's, it's cleverly done, yeah. like uh, adapted. And of course, you have friends in other uh, continents, too bad for you. Uh, it's not going to work. Uh, but the business model, which is interesting, and again, maybe we'll talk more about this Yeah, later. I was curious about that. The business model, which is interesting, it kind of goes against this kind of eyeball economy, the attention economy, because it doesn't allow any commercials. Yeah. This is very interesting, yeah. right? Like not only is this spontaneous and so For on, now. <laughs> I mean, it could be also just, it's a, it's an infancy thing or it's, is this something that is promising another avenue? Uh, investors nevertheless, and this is where I was checking out Forbes and other, and other financial publications just to make sure that I understand this correctly. Is it true that investors find this appealing? And it, appears that they do. And uh, investors have poured already $600 million into the app and it's growing, which is, I mean, not maybe in the size of uh, the meta concern, but it's definitely much more than you'd expect from a French uh, anti, like protester uh, app. But then this is still the question, like if people are pouring in $600 million, there, there, there's got to be plans to monetize. There will be plans to monetize, probably by maybe a membership fee, uh, but there's nothing that is being explained, and definitely not this attention economy. That's basically yeah. what they were emphasizing. The, the owners, the, the, the makers, the founders were clear that mm. this is what they want to not go. Yeah. yeah. So it's interesting. And what I wanted to say also is that the sign of success is that it's being copied, it's being reproduced, you know, like how Snapchat features were basically copied by Facebook and Instagram. This is what happens to be real. Um, Instagram plans to launch something that's called Candid Stories. Uh, yes, <laughs> laugh, laugh. And I will quote from a tweet from Adam Mosseri. Mosseri. Yeah, that guy, that clown. Yeah, well, don't call him that because he has such important things to say about new products launched for Instagram. And one of them is... That's all he said. Candid Stories. A w and I quote, a way to share what's happening right now. You have to share one to see what everyone else is doing. So you have to share a candid story. It's going to use both the front and the back camera Whoa, at the same surprise, time. Surprise. But as a story, and you're able to place your selfie where you'd like, your timestamp where you'd like, you can rearrange it and use editing tools like you could for any other stories, but no filters. Nope, nope, nope. 
So Instagram candid stories is on. And then maybe unsurprisingly, because TikTok is really like a sponge for whatever works. TikTok has also a be real clone, uh, which is called TikTok now. And the, uh, the app actively, actively promotes this particular tab in their, in their, um, features. Yeah. So there's a feeling among traditional, uh, apps as well as these up and coming apps and be real is one and perhaps the most successful one of a series of this kind of spontaneous, authentic, um, apps that this is where the population is going. Right. I, yes. Could, go ahead. If I could just say, I mean, it's 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 that feeling, and and going back to the the year in review reports, is that it's very clear to me, I think, and hopefully to to the listeners as well, that that the fact that so many disparate platforms were using these key, like Reddit, the Reddit recap, number one thing we're saying is that redditors kept it real. Pornhub even saying that people are looking for more real content. Authentic. I mean, it's a, uh, it, it, and, and Pornhub is not competing with these other platforms, which is why I think they're an interesting outlier to look at. But I think across these different platforms, they look at be real for sure, I think. And they design these year in review reports to say, look We're how authentic real. everyone. I mean, it's like, it's, it's, what, what a charade, man. Exactly. Charade. I mean, there's two things that are important to point out. One is the obvious thing which you already hinted at, namely like authenticity in big quotation marks, right? Can we really be authentic on social media? And of course, there will be a lot of disclaimers to all these claims that Be Real and any other Instagram candidate on TikTok now, etc., etc., would make, saying that, of course, you can, you can fake it if you want to and so on, but is it really worth it? Because that's not what's going to uh, make you any points. From a politics point of view, which is again what I'm trying to, to uh, you know, guide uh, ourselves to go, the question is, are there any politicians on Be Real, right? Are there any politicians? Because politicians migrate to those platforms where their voters tend to congregate. So it used to be Facebook, then it moved to Instagram. Then a lot of them moved to TikTok, though maybe not so successfully as they expected because of the way algorithm is uh, promoting posts. And now you'd expect people to be on Be Real. So, mm -hmm. so you... Prove me wrong. I think there are, but slowly. Um I have one example, and that's the example of uh, a uh, the Democratic governor-elect uh, in Pennsylvania, a person called Josh Shapiro, who is on Be Real and is very active there. And I have a little quote, which I think would illustrate kind of the uh, mindset of Shapiro, but probably of many other politicians just like him. And it comes from her digital, uh, from his uh, digital director Annie Newman. Young people, it's a quote, see these platforms where someone has to be wholeheartedly who they are and they're a little bit more discerning. We can tell when somebody's acting authentically or doing something their digital director, which is herself, asks them to do. So there's a move from uh, like this new style of campaigning that turns the candidate into a content creator if that's the if that's the trend, fine, but it has to be an authentic content creator. What was the name of the politician? The name of the politician is Josh Shapiro, and he is a Democratic governor-elect in Pennsylvania. I want to know his, his age. Gen I'm, Z, I'm I would it. say. I would surmise. Born seventy-three, age forty-nine. Yeah. So, 
So he wants to be there where the new voters are. And a very important element to detect why he's very interested in that. In the United States, 8 million people turned age, uh, turned of the age able to vote this year. Mm-hmm. So we have 8 million new entrances onto the political market, which is a substantial motivation for politicians there, for example, to be present where their potential voters may be. Especially if uh, Gen Z with their high-proof sunscreen is uh, yeah, coming of age. So exactly. they want to be real, right? Um, so, But it, of course, it's, it's interesting when other politicians don't know what this is about. And I've read an interesting um, anecdote, I would call it, uh, where the leader... Um, of the, uh, um, is it the, uh, I, I'm now confusing myself, which is not a very good thing, so uh, maybe don't quote me on this, but uh, it's either the leader of the parliament or the president uh, of Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, uh, that was uh, com- you know present at some festival, and then some teenagers asked them, asked him to take their be real picture for them, but he did not know that both front camera and back camera are being activated. So he provided a selfie as well as a group picture for these guys. What was the other side? So basically it was him taking a picture of these people making funny, like a funny... Oh, but he didn't know he was going to be He did not know he was in the picture. And then he was quite confused and wasn't sure exactly if he did the right thing by yeah. accepting to take the picture, which means... But on this platform, it, it would be. Right? For, for him, he did not know Be Real existed. And it was almost like... Oh, let's be on be real. It sounds a bit unexpected. So he did not know what this was about. And it's just a sign. The reason why I bring this up, this um, anecdote is just a sign that this hasn't caught on to a lot of the strategic comms out there that would inform politicians where they should direct their attention. So that's kind of the, the, the interesting thing. Uh, be real as, let's call it, app of the year in the sense that the most growing, the most downloaded social media app in the United States and, of course, also in Europe where it originated, maybe telling us in conjunction with everything that you uh, already discussed in your previous uh, um, point, something about where we're going. And I think it's not new. I want to emphasize, it's not, this is, I would call it cyclical. Mm-hmm. It goes in circles, it goes in waves, it goes in in, uh, in this kind of zigzag patterns. And I think now we are again at a point where new generations, uh, a pretty significant number, have entered this space and they're like so disappointed of all the, let's call it, you know, inauthentic communication they have experienced and they are searching for the real deal and final point that i'll make uh, on this and of course you're welcome to to give me your thoughts i on have this, thoughts uh is that there are actually youngsters i don't know what is the generation after gen z like gen the ones who are like 14 millennial? oh no no, no, no. like uh, like even oh, younger there is, there is like one. alpha uh, whatever yeah, i think it is yeah these guys apparently are really, really very concerned with this digital environment to begin yeah, with. They yeah, should be. And so I've read in several articles from different, um, different countries, including the United States, which is otherwise a very digitalized place, that teens or tweens choose to drop their phones. Go to the park and read a book. Go and meet in real life and what i found is very very like almost like shocking to me they have no other way to get in touch there's no like 
app to get in touch with. They have to be there mm. or never meet. I think, uh, yeah, that article was going around. The New York Times, in, right? Air, maybe. I think I, saw, I think the one I saw was in the Wall Street Journal. Well, the, this one. The, the one Ludite that, Club? Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's uh, the one that I read was in the New York Times, but obviously this generated yeah. a lot of interest, which means that this is at least an aspirational, even though maybe not entirely translated into real life uh, practices by many people of that age, people that are looking for a non-mediated, non-digital communication form, a, an interaction that is in the physical realm truly instantaneous, like with people gathering together in the same location as maybe their grandparents used to do. Yes, I, I totally agree. And um, I think one of the interesting parts from that article, uh, or, or many articles that have been written in different, <laughs> different outlets, was, uh, was that one of those, those people, I mean, like, wow, let's write a news, it's newsworthy that they're doing totally normal activities. <laughs> but uh, one of them was like, uh, yeah, I've seen how my mom's on Twitter and it's destroyed her. You know? oh, so I, th I think maybe this... The this, negative effect. The, the Gen Alpha or, or whatever yeah. is next uh, sees that. Because um, you can, yeah, you can see, I mean, yeah, people are on their phone so much, maybe, whatever. I have some, some two questions basically about uh, yes. Or two thoughts on on, on your, your gift. One as sort of general question and one more about the political realm. When it comes to the, the general idea of the platform, I just wonder like this notification and, and, and scrambling to, to provide this two-minute window. Uh, I understand how it's exciting, but personally and not having used the app, I just wonder like, does this fade? Doesn't this get annoying over sometimes? It's exactly what many people were also wondering. Is this, does this have the ingredients to be a long-term success? Because besides the like notification, which can come in the middle of your teaching or in the middle of whatever, isn't this like a burden? Yeah. Yeah. It's an absolute, I don't, I don't, I don't want a ticking time bomb on my phone. Yeah. Which is the, this idea, right? Like it's always going to happen. When is it happening? Um, but also this idea that People, people's lives are banal. Like if you are going to basically cover their 24-hour span, if you have them at 1 a.m., 2 a.m., 3 a.m., and so on, until like 12 p.m., 1 p.m., and so on, they're not likely to do very many different things. And are we... That's what I was thinking. Like, do you want to see, do you want to see my paper progress over, <laughs> over months? Over months. <laughs> uh, here I am yet again in front of my desk or at my desk in front of my computer, I should say. Right. Uh, so people's lives are repetitive. They're banal. They are unglamorous. They uh, not always look put together. Um, and the question is, do other people want to see this? One answer, of course, the, the founders of this app also <laughs> were concerned with this. And one answer was like, they don't really want a general coverage. They're not interested in how many friends you have. There's no kind of network value. Mm. So it's only your friends, the people that you really find close enough to you to call them friends in real life. Like all the platforms used to be. Uh, basically, you can have like three connections or four connections or 10 connections, but not like hundreds or something like that. Um, and those people are always going to be interested, like, okay, what are you doing today? You know, what is it that you're doing? And how do you look today? And so on, because they are 
your companion, your life companions along. So they are probably likely to still hold on. But is this going to generate a lot of revenue? Is this going to be a new trend? This is where, again, a lot of the questions are, are open. So I'm not entirely sure about the business model sustainability, where or how can these apps be profitable, right? But there's $600 million coming in from somewhere. Right, which is there must be a value in it, uh, right? And this is where it's not very transparent where the app will go. Yeah, <laughs> you have some thoughts. I have, I have no idea uh, where it will go, but I, I, I do imagine this like extra time bomb can be fun for a while, but but maybe annoying. I mean, and, but I think, like you said, the, the network effects are needed. It is actually a, a sort of a, it's a legitimately an algorithmic push to kind of keep those network effects up with a very close circle, even if it's only three people. Like, at least for me, that's how Snapchat used to be. But regardless, I mean, not in terms of the, the time bomb, but like I would, I would spend a lot of time making stories for so a very limited number of people would see them. But as the Snapchat platform started growing, it was like, okay, now I can't actually do the funny stuff I was doing because of reputational risk or whatever. But... Um, so there's a, I think it's an interesting thing that the be real people are aware of that there is a downside to being, let's call it too popular, having too many connections, too many weak ties. Yeah, that's it. I think that that's exactly how to put it. But when it comes to politics and, and, and like, I think it's interesting that there was an example of this, um, Josh so yeah, Shapiro Shapiro using it is that, um, uh, when it comes to politicians, I mean, there is a sort of, especially on the campaign trail or, you know, even more so in government, there is a kind of security risk. If you have to post within two minutes and then upload it to the platform, you reveal your location where you are. It doesn't have to be geotagged, but you like it can be in your bathroom or a bathroom, which could be theoretically any bathroom or you know, hotel room or wherever. So if you've got two minutes to sort of hide your location, um, I'm sure there's ways that you can do that. You'd have to have a really savvy politician and Remember, you have digital to director. both front and That's back. That's what I'm saying camera. is that like, there's a risk that if you're on the road and you're, you're taking a picture, maybe that can be sort of, you know, put into Google, you know, reverse image search and be like, ah, oh, politicians there. And so I know that sounds a bit kind of conspiratorial or whatever, but there is a risk that you give away your location. Let's imagine all Joe Biden doing this. All members of Congress, all senators, all, all politicians across the world post their be real at 2 p.m. And if there's, you know, I mean, and, and one thing that I don't think we plan to talk about in this in this year in review is, you know, violence against politicians. Nancy Pelosi's husband. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that incident. So there, there is this, a there is a risk. And so th basically what this ultimately boils down to is the lack of kind of controlled image that platforms like Instagram support because you could upload and polish and control versus a two minute window. So that's that's just one constraint of that design feature that I think would make it less useful for politicians that there could be a security. And I think in the case of Josh Shapiro, this was uh, his profile was particularly active during the campaign period when he did not have a private life, basically. <laughs> like 
any time of the day you would you would prompt him he would be probably somewhere campaigning and which was the point of him being there saying i'm working for the politics right at the same time again at local level uh, and he's a governor in pennsylvania which is not necessarily small scale right but at the local level where people people are likely to be more personal people are likely to be more known to the neighbors and the community then it doesn't make such a huge difference like um, a local politician can probably be more successful on be real than any kind of but if you like you said like you said there was the peer pressure element where you should keep posting and if you're the local politician yeah. grabbing a hot dog at lunch and you don't want to deal with your constituents that day and you're like I need to be real well, for my constituents constituents you post it and then five minutes later here comes angry uh, angry guy about you know his his building permit and he wants to talk to you and you just want to eat your hot dog you know yeah it's Come it's different it's definitely there's been many comments around this that first question can you be authentic do people like they have a, a moment to to um, to pose you know it's not like here I am brushing my teeth I can just pause in two minutes, you know, and be my brightest Colgate smile, right? Uh, I can do that if I have this two-minute window. I can, you know, polish my, my, uh, my look so that I can be presentable and so on. So two minutes is enough for that selfie moment. Um, and the other question is like, can it hold? Is this an unwarranted pressure? Um, and maybe it is not. But what I wanted to highlight with this particular Be Real app, but also with its clones, the candid stories on Instagram and the TikTok now, and there's some other apps uh, that, again, are too small perhaps at the moment to, to mention here, is this desire, this aspiration, this thirst, if you wish, for authenticity that people in their everyday life, as well as uh, politicians in, in their everyday practice, seem to be kind of meeting each other on. Like people want to not have this beautified version, they say. But again, as a reminder, so did Instagram. Like this is how Instagram started, and this is how Snapchat started. And look at them now. And to me, it's it's so it's so funny and so ironic because um, I remember <laughs> I'm lucky enough to remember the time before and the time after the uh, arrival of social media where in the beginning Facebook was about this. It was like you didn't think before you wrote on someone's wall. It was just, um, but then over time you had to be more careful because... Yeah, you, there was no messenger. You had to write on someone's wall if you wanted to get in touch with them. And, and maybe people forget, but when they introduced the, the timeline feature where it was like all of a sudden it was very easy to go back and I forget when this was, like maybe What do you mean to go back? So there was really no way to go and, and scroll on someone's wall. It would just take forever. No one would do yeah. it. But there was like a lot of basically private message stuff on people's wall. Uh, a bunch of high school and college students being like, what happened last night at the bar? You know, did, yeah. you, did you hook up with that person? Um, you know, oh, you were so <laughs> drunk last night. You, I'm posting this here so that when you wake up, you'll see it because you did this, 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 and this. And then, you know, four or five years down the line, Facebook said, oh, we're introducing this timeline feature where you can just click on a year and go back and, and see what people posted. Everyone was Freaked freaking out. out. Like, oh my God, like I'm applying for jobs. I'm now like a college junior or senior. 
I don't want people going back to my high school messages. And then Facebook even had features that said something like, you know, we'll do automatic blockage of your messages before this date or something to that extent. Like, we'll, we'll moderate this for you uh, or choose what you want people to see and not see because I'm sure the outcry from the community, I mean, like, I remember these days and it, it shows my age a bit, like, my God. But this uh, is a question of this public and private spheres, right? Like social media was supposed to be an intermediary between this private sphere of family and friends? Not not in the, the origins of Facebook. That's what I'm saying, is that it, it was a sort of private space because you had your page. And I mean, going back to MySpace and X page before that, which is like archaic by now, but I don't even the, 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 the sort of, uh, the, the, uh, maybe some listeners who are sort of in the same kind of context that, that, that I grew up in and that kind of, um, American first adoption of these, these platforms when they were coming out, it, there was no public feed. It was never public. It was like, you have your page and you post on it, but it was more like a blog. Yeah, it was like it was just imagine your messenger and like you would you would private message people on their wall. Yeah. Because no one would ever go and read someone else's wall and scroll down and see it because it was too technologically prohibitive. Um, Interesting. Anyways. Yeah. I think I think it's an interesting... what basically the, the point with my first gift. Yeah. This aspiration or this desire for authenticity is a pendulum oscillating between one thing which is like processed images and trends and stylized communication of various kinds and this very raw unesthetically pleasing communication and then because it's going from one extreme to the other i see now we're in the authentic mode and i this is why i think it's important to highlight and it's important for politicians to take this into account when they model their images but i am not convinced of this sustainability i'm not convinced that this will be the same in the next year in review inshallah i hope we'll make it you know like it may be that the pendulum has swung the other way and people are like no i don't want to see the socks of this person every day at two o'clock i want to do something else with my life and it's more to this person and then this particular vision of themselves but it's definitely um signaling something and it will connect to something that i'll see later on which is the extreme end of this authenticity the extreme counterpart of this authenticity which again stay tuned <laughs> for that a little bit later on all right so gift number two no gift number three two for me two three overall three overall and these will be shorter definitely than the uh, overall platform stats but um my it kind of relates to, to a bit what we've been talking about already is the um just the general fragmentation of the social media landscape this is just something that I've been I've been thinking about, and in particular, just the the, the number of platforms. It's getting out of control, <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, just a bit of context. Um, so I had the the pleasure of of redesigning a course that had run at my department, and um, and teaching uh, master students on media and political engagement. So to shout out to uh, to any of those students listening, um, but it's a, it's a theory course, and we we covered a lot of ground, and and you know sort of going from the historical perspective of media and politics up until the digital platforms of today. Mm -hmm. 
And as part of that, um, one of the things that I wanted to, to task the students with was to compare different social media platforms across their designs and try to think about, okay, what's the relationship between platform design and political agency? And so to prepare for an assignment where they would have to really like look at platforms in depth, uh, I had to figure out, okay, well, what platforms do I assign? And so I ran a, a little, you know, Google form to ask them basically, uh, what platforms do you use or have used somewhat regularly? <laughs> How many in total? Well, you know, and I, I tried to make sure that I didn't forget, you know, platforms, that, you know, very international classroom, students from, from China, India, um, you know, Central, Eastern Europe, uh, you know, very few, Amer one American guy, uh, Bryce from, from, from St. Louis, but... Um, so it, it's it's not the Western focus, well, a bit of a Western European focus, but really trying to think globally. And so I was looking like, what are all the platforms? And I put down as many as I kind of knew and could find, and then asked students to also fill into the form ones that I had missed. And I'm not going to report the, the general results of that uh, kind of, you know, little internal survey, but here's just the platforms that at least one student had said they had used or have used somewhat regularly. You ready? Oh my God, I'm going to be blown away. Facebook. Number one? I, no, 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 I, this I, is in no order. Is no order. It's in no order. Just the students have used this. Facebook. One of them at least had used this platform somewhat regularly. Facebook. Messenger, which I'm which considering different from, from Facebook. Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, Tinder, or other dating app. So just dating apps in general. Yeah. TikTok. YouTube, Be Real, WeChat, Doban, which is a Chinese version of Reddit, Reddit itself, LinkedIn, WhatsApp, Telegram, Signal, other encrypted app. That's all one group. Weibo, Vcontactia, QQ, wow. Pinterest, Discord, Twitch, Tumblr, Viber, Quora, Xiaohongshu, Billy B. That's two definitely new. I don't know what those are. But generally, I, I asked the students about this. And from what I remember, these are like the Chinese versions of some Western app. I don't know which ones exactly. Clubhouse and DeviantArt. So, I mean, it's, it's over 20 of these different... Um, yeah, Be Real is there. Be Real is there. And we'll, we'll, we'll come yeah, back to that. Yeah, it connects. So that means uh, all the stats that the platform has about its users are true, since it's your students, they're that generation. Indeed. So I'll talk a bit more about these different platform comparisons, but I just thought this is getting out of control from this survey. I was like, this is nuts. This is so many platforms. And I remember back to this uh, exchange in 2018 between Senator Lindsey Graham and Mark Zuckerberg yes, at one of these the famous Senate hearings, hearings yeah. where, where Zuckerberg was basically arguing that Facebook is not a monopoly because there's competition and at any moment Facebook can be uh, sort of subject to, to extreme wipeout by competitors. And it seems so ridiculous in 2018, right? Yeah. Here we are today. Meta's stock has dropped 70% from its, from its peak height. And so what? So what? Like hindsight's twenty twenty. <laughs> Always. Uh, but at the same time, I think one of the cool things is if we can look at this in a you know kind of academic way, is that the more platforms that are on the market, the more we can come to understand actually what is social media as a genre. 
right? What most in, in, in political science and especially comparative politics, we call this a most different cases research design, right? If you have multiple different cases, but you can find the similarities between them, then, then that's what defines the essence. Then that's what designs yeah. the genre, <laughs> yeah. right? So I think that was kind of, uh, in teaching this course, was something I was curious to know, like, well, what is actually social media when there are all of these different platforms that people are using from the Be Real to the, uh, the sort of more general Facebook? And so, um, you know, there's some clear ones, right? Like connecting users, creating content. Um, User-generated content. Filtering algorithms, right? So what I tasked my students to do in an assignment was I basically took from this survey, which were the platforms that, you know, 60 to 90% of the class used, the mainstream ones, the Instagrams, the yeah. the messengers, the... the um, in, WhatsApps. WhatsApps, exactly. Yeah, sure. And then which were the ones that kind of, you know, 30 to 60% of the class used? This was more of the Be Real, um, the Tinders, et cetera. And basically said, okay, there's going to be seven groups. Each group is going to get two platforms. One that like most of y'all use and then one that some of y'all use. And if you don't use it, download it, figure it out. And basically compare these along their, their designs and their architectures. But then try to argue what is another function besides these, these common ones that is not just specific to your two platforms, but define social media as a genre. Okay. And then... That was ambitious. And develop some categories that help flesh this out. So this kind of, this architecture's argument, right? Like define a function of these platforms and then make some categories and compare these two along them. And they crushed it. They crushed Kudos this to the class. assignment. They absolutely did. And so, so I thought I would share with you their functions they came up with. Additional to what we already know. And um, the, some of the categories to, to describe these functions as the second gift, in addition to just fragmentation, which is kind of broad. So let's go through these groups. Mm -hmm. So the first group compared the architectures of Facebook and Be Real. And they came up with moderation. Yeah. Moderation is something that's a function of all platforms. They have to do it to filter the flow of content. So all platforms moderate. And they looked at, for example, what is the criteria that one can report? There's big differences between Facebook and Be Real. Facebook is like, you know, is it violence? Is it hate speech? Is it this or that? Whereas Be Real only had two. And I forget what it was. Like, I think one was, is it inauthentic? Mm -hmm. And one was, is it... Um, Something else. I don't have it in front of me. But yeah. just the idea that like, what can one report? Much less content moderation on Be Real. Mm -hmm. Who actually views the reports? That was their second category. Is it AI or is it humans? And then the third is what is the strategies for dealing with the different types of moderations? How do they actually respond, the platforms? Take down the content or market? Down? Do they forward it up? You know, how do they deal with it? And one of the, one of, I think actually it was a, a French guy in the class. He he reported one of his friends' be reels just to see what happens when he reports it. Oh gosh! <laughs> I don't I'm, think anything happened. At I'm the afraid end of he the was day. not popular anymore in the friend crowd. And what happened? I don't remember. I know this is like a, it's so anticlimactic, but um, <laughs> okay. But remember, nothing happened. But perhaps. I think that was the entryway to say only forty people are dealing with this this platform that is so popular. Yeah. So moderation is one common 
uh, function. Different styles of moderation. Different More styles. or less of it. So that could be something that... that uh, it's also, I must say, it's something to do with the size of the platform. Like mm-hmm. Facebook cannot afford any other moderation but a mediated moderation through automatic technologies because of the size of the platform with over 2 billion people or accounts rather active at some point uh, in a month. It's, it's a whole lot of common compared to Be Real, right? Like it's a scale issue. You but cannot do that. still millions of users against 40 staff. Which may also question the, the moderation capabilities of Be Real. Thinking about your uh, your clip of the bank robbery. Yeah. How do you, how <laughs> do you right. moderate yeah. that? Yeah. Stop everything. Do the bank robbery. Of course, some people prefer the the social penalty of not posting their be real if they are in a situation where they cannot, they choose not to be real. Yeah. And uh, I think this is another thing like, do you have to be, you know, do you have to join this crowd or your Luddite club um, article? Maybe the alternative is not a, a unmoderated or less moderated platform. The true alternative is to bail out of the social media participation to begin with because the sense you'd get is that any kind of social media communication will be inauthentic to some extent, will be conditioned upon not only your internal or external circumstances, but by algorithms or decisions that are made way above your head uh, by, you know, decision makers from Brussels to Washington to, uh, you know, New Delhi and so on. And the only way to truly be real is in an unmediated presence, right? (laughs) Yeah. What is that called? Like the, uh, you're sort of getting eaten from the inside. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. If you're too real, basically, the only way to truly be real is to not be there. So let's go to the the second group and what they came up with. so they got Instagram and Pinterest. And again, they're good not... Good pair, good pair, because yeah, yeah. they are visual. No, so I did the pairings. So yeah, uh, okay. You, but, it wasn't... <laughs> okay, but, 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 but remember, their task was to think of what's a function that's applicable to all platforms and then just compare them on the two that you got. Okay. Uh, as they compared all the other sort of aspects of the, uh, the architectures as well. Uh, and they came up with e-commerce. Uh-huh. So all platforms support e-commerce in one way or another. And their categories were... How can people pay on the platform? That's actually very cool. Yeah, yeah. Do they need a sort of third-party service? Or is there a sort of hosted checkout provided by the platform? Promotion via ads. What type of account do you need? Pinterest has very specific requirements to be a merchant, for example, on the platform. But then that raises the question, I'm sorry to interrupt, but just it, it immediately pops into my head, is Etsy a social media exactly platform? Of Etsy. Or or um Tradera or eBay or other kind of marketplaces, right? Is this a social media? Like, can you I know that people sometimes would sell uh, on eBay things. was the first social media, maybe. Was this the first trading place? Uh, but eBay's not Pinterest and, and no, Etsy's no. not Pinterest, right? So no. so so no, it's it's some some hybrid of, of the two. Um, anyway, so payment methods or authentication methods. As one part of e-commerce. So promotion via ads, what type of account do you need? Things like space. Does the app have a shopping tab or not? Mm-hmm. Facebook has Marketplace. Instagram has, I think, its own its own thing. Um, uh, again, <laughs> my ignorance is showing because I'm not on interest, 
Pinterest or Instagram, but um, other things like that. So like e-commerce, not just in terms of making money for the platform, but all platforms do facilitate e-commerce to some extent. extent, extent in some way between users, between users and brands, between users and companies. I thought that was a good one too. Yeah, very interesting. I haven't thought about that. No, neither did I. That's why the uh, the students did it. They, they, they are good. Yeah, they did good. I had, I had really good ones. Uh, another group got YouTube and Discord. Mm-hmm. And they came up with monetization. Which is not too far away from e-commerce. but Similar to e-commerce, but monetization is arguably different because they focused on how do all platforms promote um, creator income versus platform income. Uh-huh. Paying us versus paying the creators. Yeah. And so, again, this is YouTube and Discord. They focus on things like third-party partnerships, merch. Apparently, on Discord, users can make money off of building bots that do all kinds of crazy stuff. I asked them about this, and it was like, <laughs> they're like, dude, everything. <laughs> bots can like just read lyrics of a song that you plug in from Spotify, and the more people use your bot. Your bot on Discord, you get paid a, a sort of return on yeah. on that use. It's like um, Facebook used to have this app platform. Like you can build an app within Facebook. Exactly. And then, yeah, you'd promote the app, but Facebook would get a, a certain percentage of your income from that app. So, so far we're at moderation, e-commerce, and monetization, which e-commerce and monetization are similar, but I think... Yeah, yeah, slightly different there, yeah, for sure. Another group, they got Reddit and Facebook Messenger, and they came up with content logistics. So looking more at like, what does the whole constellation of the design mean for the content side? And their categories were the content genre. What is the general content profile of the platform? News, fashion, animals, and crypto on Reddit versus maybe personal chats and interest on on Messenger, right? Then they had interactivity which is how do people interact with content? Different from the general understanding of interactivity, but like, you know, upvotes and awards on Reddit versus reactions and emojis on Messenger. And then content credibility. What's the source of, what's the general type of protopiles on the platform? What's the content they would promote? But then what's the general feeling of content credibility that's provided by the types of account allowed on the platform. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Next group, TikTok and LinkedIn. That is an unusual pair, I must say. And their fifth category was notifications. So, and, and you know, I think actually this is actually a really good one because all platforms notify you. But how do they do it? And, and what are they trying to signal with it? And so they had, what is the relevancy that generates the notification? What's the criteria mm-hmm. that makes the notification? I have no idea. Actually, I'm very curious. What is, <laughs> what are the criteria to get notified? Well, it's very different across TikTok and LinkedIn. Okay. So I, I don't have all the their slides in front of me, but they really broke these down. They did a great job, all these groups. And then... The other thing was how are the notifications distributed? So like there's the relevancy from the content side. What makes the notification become a notification? What does the platform decide to notify you about? And then how is it distributed? In-app, email, or push notification to your phone? Mm-hmm. Very big differences here. We all can see this as yes, users, right? Totally. So that was cool. Another group got WhatsApp and Snapchat. And they argued that another function is accessibility. 
Good point. In terms of, for example, one of their categories was digital literacy. How easy is the app to understand on first-time use? Snapchat, tougher than WhatsApp. Mm -hmm. And then second, assistive technology, getting more into disabilities. Yeah. How easy is it in terms of color code, pressing, with your thumb? Yeah. yeah. And so uh, does the app have accessibility features or do users need to find workarounds to use the app? And um, this group is talking about how there was like uh, groups of blind people who were discussing, here's how you can use Snapchat. As a blind person. As we are. Yeah. Because it's not intuitive. I must also comment on this very quickly uh, that to some extent regulation is also playing a role. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, th- I think this has been a light as ever, the as, as ever the regulatory. The EU has introduced recently certain um, mandatory uh, content um, accessibility uh, requirements for any kind of public um, media. And um, that means, for example, alternative text to images. We can see that for any Twitter users that you are invited to describe very clearly in no um, ideological terms, no interpretive terms, but simply describe what the visual uh, cues are, like uh, this is a man laughing while, you know, a rainbow comes out of his mouth. Yeah, <laughs> this would be... Uh, a Like when you go onto YouTube and there's a closed caption, it's, it's like a... dramatic music playing <laughs> exactly. before Tom Cruise jumps off cliff. Exactly. Uh, I mean, you need you need to, to understand that. You need alternative text, you need readouts, uh, and this is where AI technology has been very helpful because you can have more human-sounding voices reading out text and so on and so forth. But regulation plays a role in this, and there's an incentive for platforms to um, accommodate, if at, you know, at the minimum level, accommodate this type of interventions in order to provide, um, you know, a variety of functional variety, uh, functional variation uh, accessibility points. And I think it's great. I think it's fantastic. This is where technology really proves that it has a benefit for mankind, you know, that you can do these things today. You yeah. can't annotate in this way. No, I think it's, uh, I remember they, they, they were asking like, you know, should we do accessibility or, or something else? And, and I was like, no, like, I mean, this is actually where really thinking about design is, is important. I myself don't have a, a particular disability, but I can totally see how if you think about, especially in, in the political context, the role of platforms in democracy, I mean, the whole idea of like public sphere, which is kind of this, you know, generally vague concept, but but what you can take from it, at least for me, is that for a public conversation to be public, it needs to be inclusive. Exactly. And, and it's, this is more than just, just like wokeness and, and stuff. It's just like, how do you design and optimize? These platforms are designed and optimized to be used as simply as possible by as many people as possible. And I think, for example, when Snapchat first rolled out... It wasn't self-explanatory. No, they're trying to bust into the market. They're trying to get a bunch of users. They're not thinking about accessibility. But as they stabilize, it's accessible design is, is something that is important. And it's maybe it's difficult. I don't know. It's not really that difficult. Um, in one of my projects, uh, I... Uh, com- I- Design helped design together with uh, 
engineers and uh, and um, UX architects and so on, uh, several digital tools that were specifically designed for accessibility, partly also because the project was uh, a, a EU-sponsored one, but also because EU generated several legal guidelines on how to do this. And it's not really that difficult. It's that's it's just having this mindset, exactly. just thinking, exactly. okay, not everyone is reacting to this particular interface the way I do. So let's think how other people would see it. And then you'd, they would, you just have to listen more than anything. You just have to listen to what other people would want to have in terms of text, in terms of sound, in terms of video, in terms of vibration color. and uh, color friendliness and so on and so forth. All these things are kind of given only if awareness exists. And I, this is why I think regulation is important because at the very bottom, it raises awareness about ways of interfacing with a particular digital platform that is just making it more uh, user-friendly altogether. Yeah. Even people that don't have a particular disability, they might enjoy bigger text on some uh, web page, yeah. right? And, and I, I think, you know, when it comes to, and, and this is something maybe, yeah, I, this was one it's of It's a my, great point. I wanted to say access, uh, accessibility is a great point, and, just and, to go back and, to what and, you were saying. And I think when, when reading some of these platform reports, I mean, I think in, in terms of the general like uh, raising of certain issues to the, like the front of the national conversation, like particularly around, let's say, just for example, transgender. I mean, I don't think this is necessarily a a, a, a vital interest in the, the, the national public security that, that needs to be discussed by everyone at all times. Um, so, so the point I mean by that is that I don't think accessibility is something that is like, like top priority and needs to be discussed because it's hard to figure out or something like that. But it's exactly what you said. It's like these things are such simple fixes to bring more people into the conversation by, for example, changing color schemes or changing uh, speed of scrolling or providing an option to do that, that I think these are important to address because I mean, they're so... more yeah. than, than, than the official category intended for this use. I, uh, one of the examples that one of my, uh, one of my um, engineering uh, uh, friend, friends would say is like this kind of automatic door openers that you can activate with your elbow or, or your uh, knee. They were originally designed for people that had functional variation and had to put, for example, in a wheelchair. But during the pandemic, for example, people did not want to open the door with their hand because of the potential uh, contagious effect uh, at the time unknown of coronavirus. So they preferred to open the door with elbow or knee. And so this feature that was originally intended for a specific category was embraced by basically the entire population. And this kind of spillover effect, we should not negate or I think it's a great feature and I think uh, basically more people should be thinking about accessibility in very many ways and one example finally that I bring to this is this speak in clear language um, demand on public authorities uh, it's a new newish and just to clarify it like like the the university webpage should be accessible to people who can click a button and hear it as it's read and get a similar feel to how it is seen 
and this in describing exactly in the layout layout but one of the in, interesting things that i think is very for everyone like is probably born out of the accessibility requirements law that is carried out by the eu but i think it benefits pretty much every human being is that communication emerging from public institutions should be very clear no lingo so for example if you access the swedish healthcare authority webpage and you are curious like oh i have a cold what should i do it shouldn't give you some num- name of some very complicated chemical compound that or a, a microbe in latin but should just tell you you're suffering from this particular probably this symptom then you should do this like take a warm bath and uh, a vitamin c or whatever some some very clearly explainable words and now we have automatic checks for how clear language is and i think this improves hopefully even academic communication yeah. there's yeah. a hope there's hope there uh, for how academics can divorce the lingo and just embrace understandable language yeah and i just want to clarify what i what i was just saying is that like what what i mean to say is basically that it's not that this is like a value thing to push out like we should focus on accessibility because it's uh it, it's it's whatever some some political partisan ideology because it it becomes politicized it's just that it's such a quick fix if you actually it's universally this, valuable and it's not difficult to address and it's not difficult to address yeah. that's the key part things like transgender are much more difficult to address complicated things like redesigning something to just make it more easy for people who are deaf to deal with it's a communication problem and it's easily solvable and, and it so, should definitely be a sign of this inclusivity so great point. so that's it so we went a little, a little bit on a tangent on that and just lastly the uh, the last group this was kind of a kind of an oddball one but um, but but i think it is actually very interesting so they had uh, this group got twitter and tinder uh, because, they both, they, very, because they start with T. Because they both start with T. That was part of my thinking, but also because Twitter is so easy. It's it, it's been so studied. Tinder. Was I must say? Okay, yes. <laughs> but uh, the fifth function they came up with uh, was interesting. They called it persistence, but not like uh, so. There's it, within the affordances concept. Persistence means how long does a message stay alive? And so they, they took this and they said, basically, one of the functions of platforms is literally to stay on the test of time, to stay alive mm-hmm. in the market, yeah? And so they looked at things like, um, you know, to what extent can you search backwards on the platform? Because... Ah, the historical data. Exactly. Like, our message is archived. Like, on Twitter, you can look back at old tweets. On Tinder, you can only see a person <laughs> if you match, but if they unmatch you then you can't go backwards in time. So there's a temporal difference there. And maybe a match you have deletes the app. You can't search them on your messages. So there's something with the relationship between what's the sustainability of the platform standing the test of time versus the content on the platform standing the test of time. They also thought of things like, uh, this is really interesting. What other features do the apps need? On Tinder, you sorry, on Twitter. Mm-hmm. You just need a data connection and you plug into a global feed. Yeah. But on Tinder, you need a data connection, but you also need the local aspect, the proximity. The geographical. The geographical aspect. element of it. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe that's a bit of a disconnect from the platform standing the test of time. But I think they, the, 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 the interesting thinking there, like, yes, a function of platforms is to stay alive. And how do they do that through what they allow people to search? 
and what is needed from people in terms of their data. Is it just an internet connection or is it also their location? Other other data information. Yeah. yeah. So to, to wrap up my, my second gift is that the social media landscape is more fragmented than ever, but there is one upside of that, which is we can start to identify what really makes social media social media as a genre. And I think my students did a great job in identifying seven key functions. Moderation, monetization, notifications, accessibility, e-commerce, content logistics, and standing the test of time. Bravo. Yeah, pretty cool, right? Very nice. Um, there's some advantages to teaching, you know, and this became apparent in this, um, in this year in review episode. Yeah. So that's it. Next, Earl, do you have thoughts? Or? I have many thoughts, but in the interest of time, I'll try to bake them in into my second gift, fourth overall. Yeah, okay. We, we've got to really work on the, the gift uh, segmentation. But yeah, uh, here we are at number four. Number four. And my um, second gift, fourth overall, is I entitled it Twitter Changes and Their Effect on Research. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> you're looking at me and I'm like, yes, I know. This is perhaps, if we are to focus on social media events, the change in the Twitter ownership uh, happening in 2022 is definitely a historical event in the sense that it will have consequences and it will be remembered as consequential many years probably after it's happening. And there's so much commentary, including on the platform itself, but also outside of it, on various aspects of Twitter that simply our intervention tonight, today, will not be able to cover. Um, and obviously, uh, one important element is, you know, ownership and how much ownership matters. And that's an open question. I'm not going to go into this. But what I thought I could provide some insight that perhaps is useful for, for the listeners to the platform is in which way Twitter can affect researchers. So this is for the section of uh, social media and politics podcast listeners who come from the academia or from the research world more broadly. And I believe that it will affect the research capabilities in a very drastic and perhaps already negative. And I'll, I'm not going to elaborate too much, but I will try to be succinct. Why? Why is this going to negatively affect research? One of the most research platforms was Twitter. I now think about it in past tense because it was precisely accessible from an academic point of view through the various licenses and the various access points through their very large database of historical data. The open data they provide. Yeah. That's why a, a, a majority of social media and politics uh, papers use to some extent or exclusively Twitter data because as opposed to many other platforms you already named in your gift uh, just uh, uh, earlier, Twitter was one um, accessible platform. And Twitter remains an accessible platform in the sense that the academic license is 
continuously uh, valid. Uh, Elon Musk's uh, takeover has not changed that particular aspect, but what it did change in a substantial way is the structure of the data itself. Mm. And this is what I wanted to focus uh, on uh, in my in my gift is like a kind of a warning sign for all fellow academics who are endeavoring to design future research that include longitudinal data based on Twitter communication. One of the interesting things that will basically um, dramatically change our um, data understanding is, for example, the um, check the or the verified status. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, Twitter confirmed this week that it will remove all legacy like old before before Musk uh, verified account blue ticks unless they uh, are willing to pay for the new service called Twitter Blue, they are going to be the old check marks will be removed. In the meantime, these legacy blue check uh, blue checks get uh, um, a description calling may or may not be notable. I'm just letting you know I'm writing down uh, multiple. Counter, no, 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 counter, counter, counterpoints, counterpoints, or counter questions as you as you go. So I'm curious to hear how this uh, unfolds. How do we count? <laughs> yeah, well, at least we have a good dialogue, right? Let's do it. So Twitter, Twitter Blue, which is a new way to verify accounts, launched mm. um, last week. Uh, and it's uh, something that you can purchase. It costs um, about six US dollars regularly, but if you come from an Apple device, it costs 11, which is another uh, uh, sign of the warring parties between Twitter yeah, and Apple. Yeah, and that's worth standing maybe for, for users who, or listeners who don't, uh, who don't get it, which is, I think, for all of the, the must stuff, that is, that's a pretty interesting point that they want to pass the the tax that the Apple Store provides onto the consumer. Yeah. I mean, but who, who will pay for it? Anyways. But anyway, this is the de facto measure, right? Yes, definitely. Um, they need now a phone number verification as a security check when you sign up and human checks before you get a check mark, which can take up to seven days. Uh, gold check marks will start to roll out uh, as the beginnings of a blue for business. And there's gray checks for governmental accounts, which are about to roll out as well. So we, this, this enumeration describes the variety of checks. And this marks a departing point for researchers that were relying on the verified status of various accounts in order to, uh, for example, infer certain positions in the network uh, of discussions. Because old verified are going to be removed. If you are going down in a historical database, you are not going to have reliable data. And the significance of a checked or a blue check account is going to be significantly different from today forward as opposed to backward in time. And Twitter is an example, but this perhaps can also have spillover effects in other platform designs. The way we measure things over time do not always take into account platform Changes. No, which is why we should always Algor- we should Algor- always mark the architecture as we study them. <laughs> Algor- algorithm, and it's an important methodological point. 
I think. What are the policy of moderations? What are the what are the basis for algorithmic promotion or selection or filtering generally? We completely miss this as scholars, completely. And, and I think this is very important. We look back, we cannot change that, right? It's kind of water under the bridge, but we have now an opportunity, uh, and this is why I'm trying to be optimistic about it, to almost use this as a field experiment where platform changes may may as the nature uh, uh, as the ones I highlight about the nature of Twitter uh, blue checks, uh, but perhaps many others, they can highlight the importance of such features for the type of analyses that we as scholars perform when it comes to what we call as influential accounts, key accounts, uh, um, elite accounts, and so on and so forth. I think it's important to keep that in mind, and it's important 100% to, 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 with to bring this into the type of scholarship or that we perform more, how can I say, to be more aware of that, to be more aware of this. And, and rigorous about it. And more rigorous about it. And at least when it comes to Twitter research from this point onwards, um, be sure to mark this kind of uh, uh, 2022, 2023 break point in the... Um, in the system, because it's not only introducing new features, which is something that we have seen happening across the platform, so we've talked before, but the modification of existing features. So it's not like introducing reactions as it was the case for Facebook a while back, right? This is having the same idea, a verified blue check, which was interpreted by many scholars in various ways. Again, I'm not going to go into the meanings of it, but it was interpreted before Elon Musk's takeover in some way. We have exactly the same name and the same feature, but on a different basis from today's point onwards. And that can change the nature of our analysis because the type of accounts that we will have verified are different now. For example, people refusing to pay a fee. For example, people who refuse to uh, continue uh, their presence on Twitter. For example, people who are not noticeable or notable, or excuse me, are not notable, but who pay are willing to pay in order to give the impression that they are notable. Yeah. So the significance of these platform markers, though formally the same, may change over time depending on these particular um, design changes. And I think Twitter is a field experiment that provides us with an opportunity to engage with this and to literally raise awareness of the importance. Um, I probably could have talked more about Twitter, but I think a lot of the audience for the, for the podcast is already made aware of all the um, complications in terms of uh, ownership, uh, in terms of freedom of speech, in terms of, um, um, on the opposite, censorship and filtering and, uh, and so on, and the labor union stuff. And I mean, there's so many things that have been problematized in relationship with Elon Musk's takeover. Um, I think, though, as academics, we have the duty to to be aware of these, and maybe this is a prompt for us to be more aware of the algorithmic and structural changes when it comes to our analyses over time. What a beautiful soliloquy. 
What a beautiful You let me say everything by myself, but now, <laughs> because now I've been, I want I've, to because know I've been, your thoughts. I've been scribbling notes furiously because, uh, I mean, that's the beauty of recording these things. Uh, because, yeah, I mean, yeah. So what do you think? There's a lot of things to pick up on here. Uh, one is um, the historical archive still holds, right? All the things... You know, unless there's a major shutdown of of, of that, the opening of, of all the data that we can go back to the Arab Spring and get and analyze and mm -hmm. uh, occupy Wall Street and analyze and uh, with the with the perspective of hindsight. But as you said, we haven't looked at really the the changes of the platform. We've never documented these things really. So, so it's very hard. <laughs> we can't. We we look at Twitter today, and we try to go. Okay, well, what happened back then, or or with the Me Too movement, or whatever it is? Uh, it was it was a completely different platform. Not so much in the features, but of course on the back end. So the, the historical archive is still there. And like in terms of what you were you were saying about what do we do with all this this data being generated? Like we 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 have, we have that <laughs> enshrined. Right, and then maybe we blast it into space on a satellite or something. But we can also analyze it. Um, so many things to say here. Um, but how do we deal with this change, right? Like, are we aware of these changes that I just mentioned? Like okay. how Twitter Blue relaunched yeah, yeah, yeah. So, this very week. So I think in December. I, I think I think top line thing I want to say in response to that is uh, good. Let's mix it up because I think there is a there has been a. A, a professionalization or a routinization of studying Twitter that I don't think was good for research, mm -hmm. in part because we haven't been archiving the changes. So people just, there is a sort of uh, a, a cottage industry of uh, both senior academics and also PhD students and everywhere in between who's just like, here's how you do a Twitter study. Let's just do it on this protest or this case. Well, now... <laughs> It's blown up. Yeah. So we need to rethink. And I think whatever you think of, of Musk's takeover, uh, maybe this is a shakeup to think, well, yeah, rethink the, 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 what makes a good Twitter study today. Yeah. Makes us rethink how we approach it because of, for example, user drop off because some people leave the platform. Or they maybe significant users too. Yeah. So maybe central nodes in a network yeah. bounce. But new users come in too. Fresh users, not knowing the norms. The norms are changing. Hate speech is up. Hate speech is blocked. Bots are down. Who knows what's happening? But it, it means basically forget the old, the old method of just here's how you do a Twitter study and I'm going to keep pumping this stuff out uh, is a good thing, I think, for knowledge building in the social media and politics space more broadly. Stay tuned for next gift. In terms of verification status, uh, it's a really good point because there's all these different tiers. I mean, from a political science perspective, does this not introduce more variants? Well, it totally does. We just need to be aware of it and mm. be treating it as variants rather than consistent marking, right? Like We have to have a breakdown time from which a blue check means this as opposed to meaning that. But just from a... Forget about... Twitter Musk in general, if you have two ca a binary category, verified or not, to all of a sudden multiple categories, you change your variables. Blue, gold, gray, and, and now you can nuances. bring you can bring more enrichment to models. 
at the same time, it, I mean, just to have the conversation, right? It questions uh, what is a truly government account and what is a potentially non-governmental account, let's say Russia today, just for the sake of, of the argument. Is Russia today going to have a blue check or a gray check? <laughs> you know what I mean? Is this a, a governmental account or is this a verified media account? But let's so just like mm. obviously there are intricacies and we don't have to you know discuss it right now. Is I the want to discuss is, it. Is rolling out right <laughs> at the moment, but there who makes the choice? Yeah, who the decides? user makes the choice? Okay, so so I think at this point it's the company that makes the choice. No, you're right. You're right. But let's flip it from the the sort of organizational account to the user level account, okay. which is there's a choice between paying and non-paying. Yeah, and that is some categorical marker of do I invest in the platform or not? Or do I invest in the ideal of the platform or not? And that's just one extra introduction of variance that can nuance studies at the statistical level. But it does interfere with the data. For example, why would you yeah, do in it? a good way. What, why would you do a, a paid verified account? That's an objective study. It is... Like the the Musk team wants you to purchase this particular blue check, not only for your reputational purposes, but also because, for example, you will see less commercials, you would get some further down the line algorithmic curation advantages. It's not just about your status or reputation, which has been the value of the blue check without monetization so far. The monetization of the blue check is transferred into some form of algorithmic consequences. Like uh, people that don't pay will be exposed to, let's say, more advertisement, whereas people who pay will see less advertisement or will see more tailored advertisement, just as an example. So there will be a different... Uh, it's like a class society. Yeah. Before Elon Musk, this Twitter was a very flat platform and people who uh, were meriting themselves because they invested a lot into the platform by tweeting a lot and producing content that was notable were verified. Whereas now it's, uh, it's a purchasable meadow, if you want, uh, that doesn't correlate to merits within the platform, but to other interests. Well, there's two, there's two possible routes and probably more, but there's two. One is that those who have the means will pay. So then verification opt-in could be a measure of class or not. The other one is that um, it's an expression of ideals. And those who want to support the ideals would buy and those who don't, don't. And so I totally see your, your argument that it confuses things. But then I also provide the, the counter perspective of maybe introducing this variance could be an extra object of study along class or, 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 or economic status and not versus ideals and not. So identity versus resources. And regardless of, of, of where you sit on that, that, that argument, what it does is it necessitates nuance in Twitter research, which I think is 100% a good thing because it's just becoming too much of the, the research just just using Twitter and just replicating prior formula was bad. 
I think, for knowledge because it's 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 just it, it becomes implementing versus really thinking. And now this is a top-down measure that forces people to think. It introduces variance. So the forcing of thinking from the conceptual side, the introducing of variance from the methodological side, both of those things work to say you can't just do a Twitter study anymore. And I think that's good for fighting out and thinking about knowledge. It does. I agree with you uh, for sure. I just want to add one more thing before we go on to your last gift. Yeah, but I think it's difficult for uh, researchers initiating a study at this very moment, or in the you know early months of 2023, whenever you listen to this podcast, right? If you're a researcher and you're trying to design a uh, research that it would include access to social social media communication, your typical avenue would have been going to Twitter because that's, it's not because you necessarily or I or anyone loves Twitter per se. It was simply because a matter of accessibility. Mm-hmm. But now with these changes and this uh, questionable presence of actors of relevance for politics in this space because of these changes, then it's not a proper source for analyzing social media and politics, which is the theme of this podcast anymore. Uh-huh. Now <laughs> I I hear I hear your your <laughs> this this for anyone who who is in the situation, I'm I'm sorry to hear that. But uh, this is actually a great transition to my third gift. Because which it is? fits so well. Uh which is first of all, if if you were in this position and this happened to you then I think it actually was a necessary disruption for what my third gift will be. Uh, drum roll. <laughs> which, is, which is basically, and this is not my gift, but I will say that I think any analysis of only Twitter data is absolutely insufficient to say anything broadly about politics or democracy. And anything about one platform is insufficient to say something about politics and democracy in today's world. I agree. I wish, though, more platforms would have the openness of Twitter in order to allow us to do that type of comprehensive analysis. Mm-hmm. But, but that lacking, but I mean, the, we, the, the trend has been instead of like more platforms becoming like Twitter, is more like Twitter becoming in line with other platforms, making it very confusing and um, hard to research. But now to your third gift, which, which is, is now the fifth gift. We need to do better at the accounting, at, at, yes. <laughs> accounting for each other's gifts. Is um, it's a it's a question or a provocation? Something that we have we have a provocation, about. which I love in general. Is that are we seeing a general decline in the centrality of social media? And politics. My goodness. I think this whole podcast should be only, maybe it should be cut here and have a two episode podcast because I'm afraid this particular topic will occupy us for quite a bit. It will. And I have some notes here. So apologize if I read because. Um, Go ahead, be systematic so I can intervene unsystematically afterwards. With this, the is something, this is something that, you know, emerged out of conversations we've had over the course of this year, which is that like, um, it just, it's a, it's a general sense that like uh, the whole social media interest, it's still very much in the media, uh, which also we need to connect to the interests of journalists, that, that they have a very uh, strong interest in particularly disinformation. Um, and, and they're concerned about this, they report about this. Um, and, I, and so I think it's, 
there's just a general sense that I think we passed the heyday of focusing on what is the effect of social media on on politics and i think what what, what, what my gift <laughs> have we <laughs> I my, mean, what, what, some people <laughs> may or may not yeah but i mean but i mean the people who listen to this podcast are are, are interested or are working on this too and, and and so this is really like a gift for for y'all which is it's it's not about like i i don't think social media is less important for politics than it was but the question is what is social media <laughs> It's not going to the fundamentals. You know, just just back in 2016 it was Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, maybe WhatsApp. Now, it's literally going back to the second gift or, what, or the third whatever gift that was, a fragmentation. It is so many different things. And so I think you know, connecting to your your you know, bringing up of Twitter, you know, despite this whole like dysphoric narrative of of Musk and Twitter and wherever you fall on that it's like ever present in the news cycle which if you actually think about it is probably one of his main reasons for paying so much money for it he's in the news all the time 44 billion dollars is not what the worth of Twitter is but in terms of visibility paid media earned media just like Donald Trump. I mean, he looks at Donald Trump and says, "Look how much this guy tweets. He's covered all the time." Musk t- Who has talked about Elon Musk more than since when he's bought Twitter? Musk, you know, <laughs> mentions of Musk across media increased significantly. I'm 100%, pretty sure. That's a study in itself, but it's important to remember, like disinformation, journalists are hyper interested in Twitter out of their kind of self-interest of news. So Twitter's actual role in democracy is less than it's made in the media. This is a very big issue we're bringing I'm, up. I'm very confident to say that. So I don't know if like the decline of social media and politics is the right word, but I think the the heyday of the sort of centrality of the word social media to politics, like it's already peaked. It's over. I think we're on the decline. And it may rise again with a new platform or a new event, but if everything stays more or less constant, the aforementioned fragmentation of these different platforms seems to be taking its toll on whether something on one platform can actually have the universal effects that we described or talked about it in 2016 for example like you can't just say what happened on twitter is having a bad effect on democracy because twitter is one of 20 different platforms and so you can't point a finger at one thing on one platform and say this is doing anything on the level of society and politics on the world stage before you comment i'm i'm waiting let's take the historical view And again, I hearken to my man Ben Epstein because that book really was a was a game changer for me and uh it it's it, it makes so much sense. This is this is if you think about social media, it's all new and it's glitzy and it's cool. There's be real, there's new platforms coming out, but this is actually a very natural progression of media. Facebook, Google, Twitter, this is the broadcast era of the social media age. And now we're moving towards satellite, just as TV was. It's a natural progression. It's a dispersion of the options. 
And all these platforms are still going to be around. There's still going to be the ABC and the NBC that still exist today. But we need to look to the past and acknowledge that media systems naturally fragment into higher choice over time. And this limits control of the dominant players. They're still important, but they're just not as central. And we're already in that phase where Facebook and Twitter and Instagram are not as central as they were. They're still the old broadcast players. But especially as academics, we can't study them as they were in the broadcast era. We're not in the broadcast era of social media anymore. And the irony, I think, is that as media and communication scholars or political communication scholars, we should know that this is how things go with media technologies. But people are going to keep treating analysis of Facebook or Twitter or Instagram as a general assessment of some political thing. And I think that train has already left the station. It left some time ago. And the better or the sooner we realize it, the sooner we're going to like just be better and, and go forward. And I have some more points that are really going to hammer this home. But do you have thoughts? I have lots of thoughts. Uh, and I'll keep them short to hear your next points, uh, for sure. Um, I do agree. I, I, I'm, the way I would say it is that social media study, so not the social media themselves, but the social media study has become normalized from being mm -hmm. a novelty in the 15, 16, 17, when we were, you know, 2016, 17. Let's yeah. not confuse it with uh, yeah. any other city. Yeah. Yeah. 2000, yeah, so. Um, yes. From that point on, at that point, the technological innovation and the social innovation that came with this digital mediation, <laughs> I'm always making poetry here. Anyway, like, this was novel. This was exciting. This was thought to change the way politics and social relations and hierarchies and power distributions were allotted. And that was why it sparked a lot of interest from researchers such as you and I and many others of the people who listen to the podcast today. And what I think happened over these numerous years, almost a decade, uh, is that social media became an integral and regular, normal part of everyone's, including politicians and political uh, journalists and political researchers' lives. It has found a niche social media as a group and particular social media platforms as the ones you were mentioning earlier have found their place in this new ecosystem and it, pertaining to your earlier comment about journalism i want to lift again something that uh, chadwick has talked about repeatedly since 2013 but it's worth bringing up explicitly in this context, which is the process of hybridization, which is something I really, really appreciate. And I think it's something that we see at work today. This intermesh between, let's call formerly known as <laughs> uh, analog media and social media. There is a difference, of course, in nature between legacy media and, and social media. But the fact that such legacy media has social media outlets that uh, journalists not only belonging to, they, don't, they do not act only as representatives of their specific media houses, but also as brand 
owners of their own brand mm-hmm. on various platforms so makes the system much more complex much more intermeshed much much more hybrid and what i would basically summarize your um third gift would be like fragmentation as one but also normalization and integration of social media in the general everyday interactions of politics and social life and obviously private life but this is not something that we're concerned to in this particular setting so if we are interested in studying politics as academics and and I'm talking or if we are interested in performing politics as practitioners uh the the takeaway from your gift for me is that one cannot isolate social media effects or social media behavior from the general ecosystem of political communication writ large in the sense that we need to integrate our mindset into this digital and analog even though this is this distinction a distinction that maybe it doesn't even hold anymore but this idea that what we do digitally on social media or on other digital media has direct repercussions in analog forms and that anything that happens analog that's worth happening that's worth noticing will have a digital counterpart mm-hmm. So the way practitioners or researchers will engage with political communication has to be integrated and social media analysis cannot be performed in isolation from analysis of a larger phenomena that basically now includes almost by necessity a social media component. Mm-hmm. I'll stop here. Okay. So let me go even more incisive into what you just said, which is I would even argue that taking just the social media component and, and with the same spirit that you're, you have just argued is that you, you can't isolate Facebook or Instagram or Twitter as being indicative of social media anymore. Forget the, the, broader, the, the broader hybrid system. Like... It's just, it's just not the case. And this is where I think the Musk uh, takeover of Twitter is good for academic research in the sense that it blows up the prior kind of the, the model of I'm just going to plan my study on studying Twitter or maybe Twitter and some other platform and, and analyze it. No, no, no. First of all, you shouldn't do that in general. Now you can't do that. And now you need to rethink what act like just blow up the whole paradigm i would say of how we've studied says <laughs> studied social media we need to rethink and we need to rethink and let me give you a concrete example of how we need to yeah. rethink and i will shamelessly plug uh for you valued listeners of the social media and politics podcast that um uh, i just recorded an interview yesterday that will come out on January 8th. So the first episode of the new year is with uh, Megan Clausen. She is (laughs) an amazing person who is running, she ran the digital ads for the Biden campaign. And I learned so much in this interview. Y'all are gonna learn, it's like, it is just a rapid fire. Like I completely went off script because she had so many interesting things to say. We just really picked apart. If you're interested in digital campaigning and and data-driven 
campaigning and, and politicians and what's happening, like it very much puts into context what actually are Facebook and Instagram ads in the context of political campaign. They're peanuts. And, and But this is not uncommon. Uh, again, I was um, in prep for this particular conversation we're having. I was obviously looking around and I found a pretty good um, overview of various things. But just in the United States, which is a country where campaign financing is generous and where a lot of social media research generous uh, is an understatement. Yeah, uh, comes out. The Democratic governors... Governors, oh, yeah. Yeah, Governors Association, yeah, dramatically cut out their spending on Facebook, signaling that the platform had lost much of its effectiveness over the last and two you years. See it in the stock, you see it in the market. Instead the market of Facebook campaigns and political action com committees mm -hmm. focused more, and I think this is precisely in line with what I hear you saying, um, focused more of their donor dollars on streaming services like Hulu, mm -hmm. which is a cable TV, uh, where targeting is more precise and skipping ads is more difficult. And that is exactly it. So there's there's both. <laughs> now it's getting complex. So 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 if I if I mess this up. Uh, we'll do a retake. <laughs> lean, lean on that, that that next episode that comes out because uh, it, it's rapid fire campaign talk, but it's it really it, like it's it's it caused me to to really rethink things. And so when you're talking about Musk coming into Twitter, what it means for research, like to me, it's all it's all making sense that like the current model is is just it's not sustainable. And um, so let me try to give you some, some thoughts on, on why this is and some concrete examples. So first of all, there's two general themes I want to say with this. One is that even within Facebook and Instagram, analyzing candidate accounts is in a sense invalid. And then, as you just said, taking into account the broader streaming ecosystem, the, the connected TVs and the, and the streaming services is the bigger bigger ball game but let me let me i know if, if you're just listening to this this makes no sense but let me try to, to to provide some examples so when it comes to you know politicians advertising on social media and in particular facebook and instagram this is where the research is now this is where the state of the art is right go to the facebook ad library um, try to understand the the images and the videos that uh, politicians are advertising and then make a claim about this is the advertising strategy. That is absolutely invalid. Because, for example, what campaigns are doing in the United States is they're not advertising from the social media account of the politician. They are actually creating fake Facebook accounts to advertise their messages from. And those accounts mimic essentially fake news outlets. So I'm shocked. So this um and this is all above board. It's all legal. But it's it's basically the Russian internet agency playbook. It's kind of crazy if you think about it. And I didn't want to bring that up in this interview. <laughs> I danced around it somewhat delicately, but I'll I'll, I'll talk about it here for those who are who are interested and in still listening to us is um, so the person who was running Biden's ads in 2020 also was running a governor's race, apropos governors, mm -hmm. in um, 
God, I want to say it was Virginia, but I'm not sure. J.B. Pritzker uh, is, is the, the candidate who's now the governor. And Success. Yeah, success. And you don't advertise, if you want to persuade people, you don't advertise from J.B. Pritzker's account. Because that's well, going to, what do you do? Because that's going to trigger the partisan ideology if yeah. that person is a Democrat. Yeah. So if you want to persuade people, what do you do? You create essentially a fake news outlet. They called it the, no, it was Illinois. Aha. Uh-huh. They created a fake news. <laughs> Don't say that. Don't they, say that. They created, an alternative. They created an account that mimicked a news organization and they called it the Illinois Daily. And the Illinois Daily, they put $1.5 million into to give positive messages about J.B. Pritzker. And they do this with, they mimic organizations, they mimic brands, they mimic news outlets because the source matters. We know this from research. Yeah. So a persuasive message should come from a neutral source. And is that okay? It's literally what the Russian Internet Research Agency was doing. It sounds very iffy. So they, and you can go on the ad library, go on the ad library and type in Illinois Daily. You'll find $1.5 million were were launched in support of J.B. Pritzker from an account called the Illinois Daily. Which, if you go and you look at it, it says sponsored by J.B. Pritzker, right? So it's... Disclosure, yeah. The disclosure is there. But if you see it in your feed, it just looks like a news outlet. And that's that's where they're launching their campaign messages from. Again, I just... Probably this is not necessarily important in the big scheme of things, but I'm just curious now... um, was this account having any followership? Were they able to target anyone? Of course. Yeah. And let me let me take this the next step. Let's talk about Joe Biden 2020. Let's talk about I don't know if they did this. I mean, I guess they did. But what they do is they say, here's Joe Biden's account. Let's create a bunch of other um, accounts that support Joe Biden. So we'll create not just Joe Biden, the official page. We'll create... Joe Biden for, for president, president, yeah. President Joe Biden. We want Joe Biden. They create all these accounts and they advertise messages full blast from all these different created pages. And what we'll talk on about- On Facebook. On Facebook, on Instagram. And the reason they do that is because if you're only Joe Biden and you're advertising from Joe Biden's page, it doesn't work with the Facebook algorithm. Like the, they penalize you, which is another thing I on have. On your reach, I have. I have so if you insights cr- from the Swedish election, which obviously at the very end of the spectrum of payment, but so similar. So if you create a new account, you get better reach, and so they create all these sort of pro Joe Biden accounts that are associated with the campaign, and they spread their dollars across them, so that they get more reach per dollar. But it doesn't just work that way because they also enter the same market with themselves. So they're competing against their own All pages. Their accounts are they're created competing. and they're paying higher per ad, but they do that in a way to reach all their groups, all their audiences with persuasive messages. So essentially, if you are trying to understand how a candidate is advertising and you're only studying the candidate account, you are missing an enormous chunk of actually what the persuasive or mobilization messages are. And the campaigners know that, and only high-resource campaigns can do this, because when they do that, 
they are bidding up themselves. They're losing money. They're losing money, but they're doing it because there is an added value in the precision they can get from the algorithm. Plus also fake fake media accounts that they're creating. I'm freaking out. I'm yeah. like, oh my God, I'm getting goosebumps from this revelation. And this is only within Facebook and Instagram. Yeah. yeah. Um, so many thoughts. Um, maybe not enough to just populate the, the content of this particular episode, which obviously we were supposed to have a, a short one, but now it grows. Uh, per- <laughs> to, I'm, yeah, we're I'm, entering into like hour two, two, two and a half. So. Yeah, he said one hour. <laughs> anyway, but this is exciting stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm just going to say it. Maybe it's not going to necessarily resonate to a lot of the audience. Uh, but I'm I, I'm thinking particularly of people that are concerned with research, either for academic purposes, but also for like knowing what's what's the market in, in social media and politics about. I think what is important is that um, besides specific tactics, even though that was quite a revelation, I must say, so I'm definitely going to tune in to the first episode next year. Uh, I think what is interesting and worthy of, of note and planning into is this type of um, advertisement, advertisement excuse me, strategy. And this is something that I mean, from the United States to Sweden, like two more different cases cannot be found in terms of the financial power invested into these kind of um, engines of propaganda, if you want. Even in Sweden, uh, and I know this from doing a bunch of interviews with basically all the um, political communicators in the Swedish um, political landscape, uh, what they have been facing with is particularly this type of... Um, gaming the algorithm, if you want, uh, scenario. Their challenge was how to use the little money they had compared to the United States little um, in order to make their message known to the population that is most likely to support them. And that seems like a very outright uh, thing to do, but it isn't uh, not only because it's difficult to identify this kind of user profile or voter profile, but also because you're not acting in a vacuum. You also have opponents. And these opponents are also gaming the algorithm and trying, in a sense, to sabotage, I guess is the word, you, in order to make your price per ad higher than what you know appropriate targeting would lead to so we have a, a a war of algorithms which i think is the round like is the way that is what you're describing is a roundabout way to not get involved into this so if account one account gets bashed then they can have another account and so on but this this would this could be a nice transition if we are ready for it. Not ready. No ready. I have one last point to make. Uh, then I'll stop here and say like, this is very exciting. But I think even if we are to study social media exclusively, it's not possible to not broaden us into the ecosystem, right? And a call that has been made here before, but I'll read to it almost for form, uh, knowing that it's not going to percolate further, is the need for transparency from the platforms themselves. The only way 
we can get this information as researchers or even as professionals who are playing this game is through some form of platform transparency. All right, two points. So go ahead. Two points. One is that all the stuff I, I was basically saying about American accounts creating um, essentially, and I'll, I'll call it, they're, they're creating fake news outlets as launch pads for their advertising campaigns. Um, that is all happening within the Facebook and Instagram environment. Environment. So if you're if you're studying candidates' accounts, you're only studying a fraction of the messaging. There's a whole other thing going. To your point on transparency is that it's not just that the, the, the algorithms can't just deliver it because the other side of that strategy is they are also partnering with influencers, which is not an algorithmic decision. The, uh, there's influencers that are carrying the message to the people as well. And that's something that algorithms cannot figure out. No, that's they, a TikTok model. And they cannot trace that. Now, the mind-blowing feature is My that goodness. is that that is both of those things, which are very hard to disentangle and study, are happening only within the platforms like Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. I asked this campaigner directly, straight up, what percentage of the overall digital? Okay, there's two mind. There's a double mind blow here. <laughs> <laughs> the first is. I asked her straight up. Jab cross. Megan, you are running ad buys for, for the Joe Biden camp, the president of the United States. You got him in office and she worked for Hillary before that. What percentage of this type of work is, is happening on social media within the digital media ecosystem? And I'm taking into account fake news outlets that they're making or whatever you want to call Any them. Any other, these alternative And the influencer yeah. pass, you know, carrying a, the Trojan horse messaging, basically. She said, 15 to 20% of the digital ecosystem. So let's extrapolate that. Yeah, definitely popcorn brain. <laughs> as, you were, as you were rightly yeah. saying, and, and it, it may not make sense to the listeners now, but stay tuned to that interview because the... The Facebook, Instagram, TikToks of the world are 15, 20% of the overall digital because digital is more and more becoming non-skippable ads on YouTube and connected TV. Like Hulu. Yeah. That's, getting, that's more of the 75, 80% of high budget campaigns. And that, that's one mind blow. Second is that is one fraction of the overall campaign which is the groundwork and all that stuff, which is the bread and butter. So if, if you're trying to look at the Facebook ad library to get a sense of what campaigns are doing from candidates' accounts, you're looking at like literally, maybe, generously, a 10% slice of campaign strategy within digital. Within the overall campaign, it's a slice. It's an important slice. And I want to say... I. I I so much subscribe to everything you just said and want to just say like, it's not the US. A lot of researchers, of course, who listen to the podcast come from this American environment or are concerned with studying American politics, but this is just beyond American politics. This is where the money is in any, I would dare say, context. And my information, but 
also information from this data-driven campaigning uh, research groups that uh, develop across the world seem to confirm this, that it's everywhere, like Indonesia and uh, Sweden and UK and Germany and Austria and so on, which is the idea that money that comes from like to the purpose of campaigning, no matter campaign laws, no matter the size of the financing is judiciously you know, proportioned to reach different purposes. In different aspects of the campaign, at least in the US, they fight over the campaign budget. But the personal context, and this is what I wanted to say, about my earlier point about hybridization, but confirming your 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 statement in regards to, to the interview you just had, is that um, hybridization of communication means that the budget has to be evenly spread or in the mind, like proportion, not even proportionally spread to the purpose of effectivizing outreach to the right crowd. And if you use data for analog outreach, this is one, I think it's a one important element that a lot of people maybe don't always um, make, are aware of, I should say, professional communicators or researchers is like when you say data driven it's not just about social media and advertisement strategies or post making strategies and so on it's about using either social media or other data such as opinion polls national census credit card data other information in order to provide strategies for analog communication like meeting people in a specific town yeah knocking on specific street on specific street numbers yeah this is where the data is coming in it's not just about micro targeting on facebook which is a classic it is there too so let's not discount it but it's a supplement or it's a one of the components of a multilateral, analog, digital, multi-channel outreach. And successful campaigns cannot afford to focus on any one single aspect, but need to cover all the other ones. And of course, they're conditioned by the environment in which they operate. Restrictions, regulations, my favorite thing to say on this pod, (laughs) regulation, regulation until the day I die. Yes, it matters. But no matter what the regulations are, they still allow you to have a digital and an analog leg of your campaign. And you will spend so that the personalized communication, the real-life communication, the handwritten note communication will be also there, not just the social media ads, especially as social media membership is more fragmented and dwindling in the Western world. You mentioned uh, probably 10 minutes ago that would be a good transition to your gift. Let me just read. I have, I have typed out some notes here, and uh, I'm, I'm just going to read them as the, uh, my own little soliloquy for, uh, for the end of this gift here, which is um, no study of ad library data from candidate accounts can be trusted in terms of an overall strategy. It is still important for candidate campaigning what people are doing on Facebook and Instagram but that data can only say something about a fraction of the overall digital campaign, which is yet a fraction of the overall apparatus, as you just mentioned. So 
let me wrap up my uh, written notes here, which is, I think all things considered, I don't think we're seeing a decline in the importance of platforms for politics, but there's a cognitive realignment we need to make between thinking of social media as a set of central players, Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, Twitter, TikTok, whatever, into thinking of social media as a dispersed set of interconnected platforms, where what happens on one platform cannot have the same agenda-setting power or effects that it once did, because social media used to mean only a few platforms, and now it doesn't. So we need to recognize that when we talk about social media and politics, the social media part means a much more decentralized set of things, such that no generalizable inference can be drawn from what happens on one platform anymore, and whatever inference you would draw from that one platform or set of platforms is only a fraction of the overall offline apparatus. And we need that cognitive realignment. And I hope that, you know, for example, the Musk uh, shakeup shake of Twitter starts to encourage thinking along those lines. And that is, that is it. That's my message. I think that is the core thing I want everyone to think about is just we need better thinking and broader thinking. And I hope that uh, some podcast episodes can, can help with that. But it's going to be a hard road ahead. It's the last thing I'll comment on this before moving on to my last gift. Yes. And the last gift of this show um, is that it's difficult. It's difficult to, as researchers, uh, to be able to acknowledge all this and have access to this information. People, I'm sure our colleagues listening to, to this uh, story right now. They're they, in a better position than all other colleagues. Uh, of course they do because they are favorite listeners. But they also are like increasing getting this, this sense like, what am I going to do now? When this avenue is shut down, this other avenue is shut down, this third avenue is shut down, what am I going to be able to study, am I going back to survey research in order to understand patterns of behavior? No, you got to get ahead. You got to be proactive. Well, I think from the researcher side, of course, there's that desire, but there's also the, the Facebook, Instagram, Be Real, etc., etc., platforms who also need to open up in order to be studied and examined and critically assessed. And of course, that's not necessarily a, a, a good for business thing. Uh, as we discussed, uh, I think, privately before, politics is a minute percentage of the type of content Facebook, Instagram, Be Real, TikTok, etc., etc., including Twitter, I may say, occupies. Yeah, it's 10%, 12%, even at best 15% of the overall content. But it's not ever on these social media platforms the point of the platform. And this is why artificially designed political platforms never survive because people are not, few people, few citizens around the world are interested in joining a platform just for politics. They're there for other benefits. Apparently a flop, right? Yeah. Uh, so people are in a place where interesting things happen. It's entertainment mixed with culture, mixed with business, like shopping and all your students' evaluation. E-commerce. Yeah, e-commerce, <laughs> e that's a proper term, and so on and so forth. So it's a one destination for a lot of purposes. 
politics is a fragment of it. And in general, people are not as obsessed with politics as we are. We just have to admit it, right? So we need to calibrate our measures and our approaches to account for this. That's a good point. Very yeah, good. I think, I think in general, like we, of course, this podcast is called Social Media and Politics, and I am a social media and politics like one track person. But I have also this, this partial insight that I'm just the nerd in a room of regular people who use social media for any other purpose than politics and to which politics comes intermediated through various other channels, subtle signaling rather than obvious advertisement yeah. or obvious I, um, political la politically labeled content. Yeah, and if I can, I mean, I think there's a very concrete example of this, which is like, let's say you're you're a, you're a far right uh, hate hate speech scholar, and I've, I've seen um, and not to call anybody out, but just like this is one example of of just many of this type of thing where it's like. Okay, um, I'm a, a scholar of far right or anti-Semitism, but like, if you say I find far right content on TikTok, and I found you know uh, 90 uh, accounts that promoted far right stuff on TikTok, like yes, you'll find anything, anything on, on TikTok. TikTok exactly. And so like this paper was published not in a great journal, but it was just like the, the way the paper was written was like we're sounding the alarm bells of. TikTok is is hosting far right. TikTok hosts everything by virtue of scale. So I think that that is a, a microcosm of what you're saying, which is like if you look for anything, you will find it. We need to better contextualize in the broader experience of users generally. I think um, I've been speaking a lot as an academic in this particular part. I hope somebody will find it useful, but. When we have been so compartmentalized in our disciplines, we're yeah. like trained, we study politics. So we're looking at campaigns and elections because that's when politics happens. And of course it does, it surely does. But this is, there's an antecedent and a consequent period to this. And that's where politics happens too, but just not in an explicit and easy to capture way. There's no hashtag for the non-election periods. No. But that's also when political identities, political interests, political effectiveness, and all the other elements of citizenship are being articulated, both in digital trace data and in other maybe completely non-digital, analog, untraceable ways. So when we make our grand theories about how the needle is being moved and what explains the electoral wins or losses of one or another side of politics, we should have this rather generous understanding of politics. Yeah. No, I think it's, uh, I like the idea of, of grand theories. Like uh, we can't, we can't, <laughs> we can't piece together all these different uh, platform studies of whatever platform or cross-platform studies that exist and, and put them together into a grand theory because it's 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 going to be fundamentally incomplete. So We are in a fundamentally incomplete stage. But blah, anyway, blah, blah. It's a challenge. It's a challenge. Six gift. Six gift. <laughs> Whoever is listening now, oh God. Um, 
we'll get a we'll get a kick out of this yeah, I think. All right, I'm um, my my final gift for for the day is about artificial intelligence and its transforming effect on political communication um, this is something that I haven't been able to crystallize in a text yet this is something that I'm you have no to... soliloquy to offer to the listeners uh, well I have I have something at the intersection of various things uh, but of course I, I don't want to do a soliloquy which is a fine word but I welcome your comment and input throughout um, but, my notepad. but my my um, there are two things I want to say uh, and they're um, summarized here so people who are really exhausted can you know get the gist of it <laughs> and log out but hopefully not um, there are two things one is about the transformation effect that artificial intelligence and this automation of communication, Com, uh, technology capabilities offer for security and the other one is for creativity mm-hmm. uh, and I'll uh, obviously start with security as it's you know high politics stakes and in my gift I want to raise awareness and discuss and commemorate in a sense for future, you know, archival research. Yeah, of we're going to blast this out on the space shuttle. A war in Ukraine. We <laughs> haven't talked so much about it, but no. um, if I were to uh, to define 2022 in general in a political sense, I would necessarily include the war in Ukraine as probably the most important, I'm not calling event, but phenomenon that is continuously unfolding in the world today. And this is relevant for listeners, again, from India and Indonesia to Japan and Costa Rica, because the war in Ukraine is affecting everyone indirectly, and some people obviously directly. Um, And I think it's very important that we should keep this in mind, because security is also a way to bring in social media and politics. Mm. It's not just about explicit politics and parties and politicians and so on, which we have already discussed quite extensively, uh, but it's also about governments and states and nations and more traditional um, international politics. Yeah, It's about diplomacy, and I know that several colleagues work on this topic. I'm sure that they will find um, this idea interesting for them. But it's also interesting for security scholars. And it's, of course, cyber war. And it's something that I think has been hinted at in various ways before this particular conversation we're having. But cyber war is definitely there. Um, Artificial intelligence. And I know that you're critical to the term. And I use it also to just define any kind of very advanced technology that is able to autonomously learn and produce outcomes customized to a specific instruction rather than be uh, following point-by-point algorithmic uh, steps. Yeah? So this is like a very generous definition of AI. Artificial intelligence really has an important addition in this kind of conversation. And I do want to claim it has a transforming effect uh, through this automation of communication um, that is happening right now. I will focus on the war in Ukraine on one element, and that's a a deep fake 
um, video. I want to play it just because I'm not sure you have seen it before. Uh, and uh, how much of it will make it into the final pod, uh, you will be the judge. All will make it into the final pod. But um, let's, let's connect. Sliding across the table now to uh, Catalina Marchandabru with our daily fact-checking segment, Truth or Fake. You're beginning with a story of a video on social media where President Zelensky appears to surrender to Russian forces. What's that about? A false video of President Zelensky was diffused yesterday where he's apparently making an announcement, giving up to Russian forces. This video was diffused on a hacked uh, Ukrainian news website called Ukraine24. We have the video right here to show our viewers, but just to uh, just a warning, the video is a deep fake. So it's a fake announcement of President Zelensky laying down arms against the Russian forces. Let's take a listen. This is where it says, uh, dear Ukrainians, dear defenders, I have to make a difficult decision. I decide to return Donbass. It's time to look in the eye. And now I decide to say goodbye to you. I advise to lay down your arms and return to your families, etc., etc. This video, uh, the deepfake video that uh, we just heard an Ukrainian glimpse of, uh, is a... Um, a video in that promotes the idea of the Ukrainian forcing laying down their weapons. Yeah, surrender. the The one message is surrender. Uh, the message. This particular video was launched in uh, on March twenty. Uh, no, March sixteen. Excuse me. Uh, and was published on social media, Facebook, and all the other ones, including, including Contacti, as well as on this website of the digital news site Ukraine24, which was hacked and where this video was planted. Uh, and this message came obviously in sharp contrast with everything else coming out of the Ukrainian presidency and with the government communication from Ukraine in general. Um, the authorities in Kyiv were very quick to dismiss this as a deepfake. Uh, Zelensky himself immediately posted a video of the real man talking about uh, how this was not himself asking for any kind of surrender or, and that was publicized on a variety of social media platforms. Um, but what is more interesting is, I mean, two things. One, the video looked quite credible. If you looked at it in a low resolution mobile. Yeah, phone I just saw it on, on, a, on a screen, like a, like a computer screen, it looked legit. Of course, if you knew Zelensky, you would probably uh, notice some um, issues. Uh, I've also shown this to my students, and they reacted to the language, to the, to the audio being a little bit hacky, mm. a little bit incoherent, which has to do on how the editing has been done. Uh, also, with some disproportionate aspects uh, of the head compared to the body. So there are some some physical cues as to the nature of the of this video but i believe the most important cues come from the source itself namely that the government of ukraine and in specifically um, their center for strategic communication um, which warned two weeks prior 
to this particular deepfake launch that there may come such a situation in which the Russian uh, uh, Russian intelligence services would create a deepfake asking for people to uh, surrender and basically be warned this is not gonna this is not what we want this is not what we stand for this is gonna be a, a propaganda fake news type of thing and so pre-bunking turned out to be the best type of uh, prevention. I mean, that's the that's the secret sauce. It's that's a secret, but how can you know, right? Like this, you need to have some intelligence. Of course, not everybody can um, can can be in this situation, but this is what worked very well, and this is what worked very well because also apparently the um, uh, American secret services of various kinds were the ones to inform the Ukrainians that this is likely to happen from the Russian side. And this is something that the uh, American uh, foreign policy has been also using very much, saying like, we're aware that the Russians are uh, using artificial intelligence to manipulate various forms of information. Please ex exercise caution when interacting with this type of content that comes uh, to propose unusual content compared to the mainstream uh, content coming out from that source. So that's very important. I want also to just very quickly note that this particular deepfake video was uh, marked down and removed from the uh, both Meta, any kind of uh, Meta-involved platforms and Twitter, because both Meta and Twitter have policies against misleading, manipulated media or deceptive, synthetic media. They call it different things, but they are the same thing. So there is already in place a policy that allows it allows these platforms to remove content that is manipulated in this deep fake mode, which is important. But this is one, like the security aspect, yeah? And to go to the creativity aspect and... Um, with this, I welcome afterwards all your all your comments. Is I'm writing the, notes. Um, is the uh, this new technological um, invention? I don't know if this is the right word uh, that has occurred in 2022 and is definitely necessary to include them into the social media and politics review, uh, which is the plethora of generated artificially generated images, videos and text that use prompts delivered by uh, regular users to create um, previously unexisting realities, yeah? And of course, we have to mention by name, chat GPT, uh, as well as mid-journey and DALI, um, text versus image generation mm -hmm. algorithms. Um, these are accessible, in a sense, very easy to use. You need zero, literally zero competence in the digital uh, computing space to use them. They are copyright free and they are free to use as tools. You'd have to pay zero money to be able to play in this playground. What are the consequences? Obviously, there's so many consequences that we can just imagine. For politics and social media, we can obviously see um, some direct consequences. One is the creation of deep fakes, as we have seen, like uh, 
images of President Zelensky just because he was already the uh, um, hero of this particular deepfake. Uh, images of President Zelensky uh, in Moscow uh, taking over the Kremlin, right? Like this is something that Dali can easily generate as there is a lot of data about Zelensky already. Or it can, so besides propaganda and fake news or false information, also creative campaigning. Imagine the amount of messages and of campaign design and campaign posters and campaign videos that can be very quickly and satisfactorily, let's say, be generated using this type of technology to simply uh, customize messages um, to uh, specific audiences. Uh, I go back to the Swedish example, since this is what I've been working on recently, um, the current Prime Minister of Sweden, Ulf Kristersson, during the electoral campaign of uh, September 2022, has been known to uh, be filmed repeatedly saying different particular names like, hi Maria, hi Anders, and so on. Be and this was not a fake video. This was him being filmed in a studio repeatedly with different objects that had these particular names on, trying to customize the communication to these particular Usernames. Imagine having an AI modeled officially and like approved by Ulf Christensen saying that, okay, hello, la 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 la. And this la 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 can be pretty much any name in the Swedish roster. Hello, Mohammed. You know, hello, Alicia. Hello, Azade. Hello, Maria. And so on. This would be a very effective way to customize political messages, right? So this is the creative creativity um, openness. Also in terms of the backdrop and props and things that can be created in a digital form with the help of image generators. Like yeah, scaling, basically. So as there is little regulation and, uh, and uh, again, Meta calls it misleading, manipulated media. Twitter calls it deceptive, synthetic media. This doesn't need to be deceptive or misleading. This can be very much upfront. This text or this video has been generated with the help of XY algorithm in a small print. But that would generate immense volumes of campaign material, which may affect the outcomes of a particular election in the long run. Could, could, definitely. I see that. I mean, I think these these tools are tools, right? <laughs> so they, they could be used for, for deep fakes. Um, and they also could be used to essentially deep fake prime ministers to create customized messages, essentially offload labor. Also, it, the, the same AI tools that generate deepfakes can also be used to detect deepfakes. So yeah, again, yeah, this yeah. is the, 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 I have to really emphasize technology in the sense doesn't have a direction, an, uh, um, I would say an unethical or ethical direction that the technology itself can be used for various purposes. But the technology is here, and because it's cheap and accessible, it will be used. There's, it's inevitable. It's absolutely inevitable. And I think this is definitely something that future communicators will need to come to terms with yeah. in one way or another. Yeah. So, so 
A couple thoughts on this. One is about like the general deepfake phenomenon broadly, like thinking about the malicious deepfake, not the 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 playful, not the you know um, legit uh, voter contact deepfake, but, yeah. the, but the but the general fake one. It's interesting because uh, as you as you played for us, there there was there th- this was the this was the example that everyone yeah. was waiting for, right? Um, in the context of a war scenario, there was a deepfake from one leader, and essentially nothing happened. And the question is, why? And it, I think it goes to pre-bunking. And, and it ties in a weird way to the whole U.S. strategy of, of communicating the intelligence about the invasion before it happened. And we talked about that on a previous podcast. And it's interesting because for about two years at least, I don't know exactly what the time frame was, is that, I mean, there was like this whole sort of narrative, like deep fakes are the next frontier of disinformation and we really need to to work out against them. And I remember just a bit of a, a backstory on the, on the podcast at least, it's like there was an author who had written a book about the... Um, I'm not going to use the exact term because it would give the book away and I don't want to do that. But there was a journalist who was writing about how deep fakes are going to destroy democracy. And then I sort of kind of read the book and I was like, maybe, maybe not. (laughs) Yeah, this is not, uh, I don't even want to broadcast this out or talk about it because it's, these are are doomsday claims and and I'm not sure they're going to come true. And in a sense, I think that there's an interesting thing to think about with these deep fakes, which was the fact that this Zelensky deep fake didn't work in the intended direction is because for years everyone had been warned about deep fakes. So the pre-bunking strategy had already kind of been, and we saw it in 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 the US, for example, with with various like smaller versions of it, which was uh, slowing down a video of Nancy Pelosi, taking it a few frames back that she was drunk, but it was just that the video was slowed down. Yeah. Right? Um, and so I think there was so much coverage of the media about deepfakes, deepfakes, deepfakes. They're coming. They're going to be the worst thing. That by the time a deepfake actually came, everyone was already kind of inoculated. Inoculation is a good metaphor, right? Like pre-bunking, you can also call it inoculation. Well, inoculation right? was the key term. This is another, okay, this is like real deep stuff. It was called inoculation. And then there are certain researchers who were trying to say, we found debunking, but inoculation was already. And of course, I mean, we have no particular research at the moment about the effects of this deepfake. Perhaps people in some circumstances, in some parts of Ukraine, initially were confronted with this particular video and was credible enough for them to to buy like a moment of questioning. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that which we can see is that it did not have any political effect. Mm. The persuasive effect for some people in the population may have existed temporarily, but since it did not lead to any decision change, then obviously it did not have an effect. Also, because any kind of surrender in like the message itself is made to just create confusion because 
people are not going to surrender. This is armies, commanders, generals, officers, etc., that are able to surrender. It's not regular officers who say, I give up. Even if they would, against all odds, do that, that would not mean surrender. And that's it. I think, I think you're, you're, you're hitting the head of the nail there, which is uh, one of the first studies of, of deepfakes was done by Bakari um, and Bakari, Chadwick. And of Kev- course. And, and it was about, um, you know, uh, did, it was something about, uh, they, they deepfaked uh, Obama calling Trump a dipshit or something. And it's, it's not that people who view the video automatically change their opinion because it doesn't make sense. That, no, then why would he do that? Why would he do that? But what it does do is it sows distrust in the general online information environment. So there's kind of two, two prongs here. One is the, um, the, the, the pre-bunking or inoculation strategy, which is if everyone's been, and I get your point that like, yeah. yes, not everyone in, in Ukraine has been maybe exposed to the the, the the message from the government or whatever, or just generally like the the warning about deep fakes. But it's it's been so heavily saturated in the West that that um, it already serves as a debunking strategy. Like there will be deep fakes with AI, and when it happens, question everything. Question everything. But exactly that questioning everything leads to not believing that what Zelensky said is true. But just because I must add, though, before you go any further, and again, listeners to the part haven't been able to see it, but they may see it in the link that we will post uh, at the end of it. There was also something a little bit off mm-hmm. when you interfaced with the actual video. So yeah. it, the voice was off. The proportion between the head and the rest of the body was off. Uh, the the blinking of the eyes were off. The the resolution of the face was different than the resolution of the body. So these are obviously things that you don't articulate consciously, but unconsciously or instinctively, when you look at such an output, you're like. Something is not exactly as I have seen before. And if you go to the emotions research, that trigger of unusualness will cause you to pause and seek more information rather like, than... What is this? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. What is this? What is this? Exactly. And then you go to the pre-bunking information and mm-hmm. they'll be like, okay, this is what it is. I understand. I'm not right. going to listen to this. So I think, I think when it comes to this type of imperfect deep fake, uh, what it does is it... And I think I think... Vakari and Chadwick study, and, and there was one other author on the study, I forget their name, but it, it, it shows that it's not that deep fakes automatically change people's opinions, but what it does is it sows distrust in the online information environment. Yeah, exactly. Chadwick wrote an, a very interesting further piece or complementary piece on deception. Yeah. And I think this is basically the concept that would guide it. And I think I, I haven't haven't seen like multiple studies that confirm this, but I think the general, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty confident in saying that none of this disinformation stuff is going to change your mind by seeing it, but it's going to sow trust in the information environment. And that distrust may be a bad thing, and it may be a good thing. It may be a healthy skepticism. But let me switch to my second point that I thought about with your gift, which is like it, AI, these making of deep fakes, because you mentioned how they're imperfect, it's very cheap to do. Yeah. Anyone As I with, said, it's with, very with, accessible. With a, with a bit of programming, there's already these things you can, I could make a, a similar deep fake, you know, 
with an hour or two of, of work. Um, if you want to do the campaign right, you need resources. You need the whole astroturfing behind it. You need a massive push of trolls saying, uh, oh my God, see, you know, on all platforms. And this is where the fragmentation of platforms comes in, is that if, 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 if a true troll farm wants to make this deepfake work, they need to have the deepfake come out and just flood all the platforms they can with, with trolls and automated bots pushing and astroturfing and with accounts that look like people that they want to convert to their cause to sort of create credibility around it. And that requires resources and that makes just the idea that a machine learning visual analysis type of tool to this make a deep and do something this, this is a needs to be put with a shitload of resources that I'm not sure that you can even do with all the fragmentations of the platforms. And I think, obviously, you're completely right. And um, Jessica baldwin Filippi also talks about the limitations that come with resource, um, with resource limitations uh, for the... Like, People are aware of what they should do, but they cannot do because of lack of time and lack of money, right? But this is where AI can really come in and this automation of communication really play a role because they say, okay, this is cheap, like n no money required, and this is fast. Uh, as you say, you yourself uh, can create a video in two hours, three hours. If you have five hours, you probably can make a really good one, um, deep fake or any other uh, spin-off from from such a you know um, politics uh, of other other leaders' uh, point of view. So basically, it's a resource for campaigners, and I'm pretty sure that campaigners currently observing the 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 chat gpt and the uh mid journey and so on i was thinking oh yeah the, i can make this work for me because it only takes some training in terms of the prompts and some training to re further refine some imperfections let's say in photoshop with the outcome of the of the um image generation uh, algorithms but compared to how long it would take otherwise this is peanuts yeah. So I do think there's a lot of options that are open up and how we regulate, which is my common theme, but also what are the mindset of people, information, like what you'd call media literacy also comes into play. And of course, the Zelensky video was not successful uh, and we only talk about it because it has been debunked and this, this worked in this environment where a, a lot of expectations were already set and so on but in, in environments where for example everyone accesses through a poor data connection where everything is pixelated yeah, by nature literacy. Uh, poor media literacy, uh, poor governmental communication, uh, in, insufficient resources for reaching out to uh, a population uh, from a rural rural environments. So on that may be a, a a ripe audience for such things, and we haven't seen this very much yet. But it's not unlikely to see this happening. So let's look outside, perhaps Europe and see how this can play out, where these resources uh, um, can be used for people that need them since they don't have alternatives. They don't have a, a million-dollar budget 
right? They have to make do with something much smaller. And yeah. that's where AI and automated communication will come in. And even there, I, I was looking again at some quotes about this and and people were saying that it's very difficult to customize uh, messages for various platforms, precisely in line with your fragmentation argument. Uh, and a quote that I have, um, which is uh, um, a quote from a communicator, practical uh, practitioner, Alex Kellner from a Bully Puppet Interactive. Uh, it doesn't make sense to put a uniquely sharp 30 second ad on Facebook, which would be totally different from everything people are seeing on their feeds. So you can get that same message into a carousel. Can you get the same message into a shorter slice of life treatment? That's basically what they're looking at. So this kind of tweakments, if you wish, is not like really remaking everything, a deep fake from zero to everything, but just like adapting an original text so that it fits various customized and audiences. That's where, that's where I think where these AI uh, algorithms may play a very concrete and direct role. And that's where I, I it's an open question, maybe something to return to in year in review, eighth annual 2023, is that um, I think the platform environment and the fragmentation and the various developments within them is going to move too fast for this type of automated adaptation, at least where we are in history now. But a kind of plug and play, let's take this 30 second clip and let's adapt it to boop, Instagram, boop, be real, boop. Chat GPT can generate this type of content today. Yes. So you can take a long but Facebook such, post and but, say like, just as an idea, right? You're a communicator. You have developed your human powers. Develop, press a button and develop this across all platforms assumes that the platforms are not changing. GPT-3 chat was trained on... Basically what I'm saying is I, I predict, at least for the next couple years, that the platform... Uh, architectures and design and environments will move faster than a centralized technology that can develop to them because as soon as as soon as there is a central module that can say blast my candidate's message to all platforms those platforms are going to change too fast for them to be able to to keep clicking that button year over year that's my prediction okay. for 2023. I think this is where we might disagree, actually. Yeah, but 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 it may be that that the models are still developing and they're exponentially growing. So are the platforms. And the uh, thing with AI is, the more you use them, the better they learn. I am I am so skeptical of this in the long term, but I may be bitten in the uh, the butt for this. But, we will uh, see in 2023. Um, but anyway, so this this is my last gift. It's about AI and the uh, the disruption, technological disruption that it provides to the communication business. Yeah. Yeah, and I, 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 I see that there are, I, I see where you're going with this, and I'm going to take a line that uh, I think platforms are moving and will continue to move and fragment too fast for AI. Maybe powered by AI. Let's return in 2030 and see how this, uh, how this, uh, <laughs> how, how it turns out. Differentiation. But, um, 
That's it. I'm done. I'm welcoming any comments from the listeners who made this, it. To this all may this. have been the longest, uh, the longest. Maybe we can also uh, um, edit some no, elements. No, I'm not cutting anything. But uh, let's let's close it down. And um, I just say thank you very much for having me and uh, welcoming this very broad discussion points. I hope that both yourself and the audience had some elements of fun and elements of surprise in being provoked by these trends. And um, let's hope we generate some discussion around this as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's um, it's it's. It was funny because I went into this thing. Well, this was just no ordinary year, and then you. you Think about it, and it's like, uh, as always, it's um, this 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 space is is always changing. But I think really it is a maybe for me a realignment year. I don't know how, how you think about it. I think you're in terms of your prediction for your last gift. I have to just and maybe on this general point, social media and politics may not be as a clear cut domain as it was before. So even the name, the very name of this podcast may need to up, upgrade and update itself to reflect the more complex environment in which politics and political communication will take place in. Absolutely. But... Um, until then, yeah. Until then, I'll say uh, let's let's wrap it down. Dr. Anna Maria Duchek, thanks so much for taking the time out and joining us and sharing three gifts that... Uh, hopefully carry us into the new year and beyond. Thank you very much for having me. And let's wrap it down. And um, I'm just going to say, I'm very excited that next year is the year of the rabbit (laughs) and not the tiger. So uh, stay tuned for next episodes of the podcast. And until next time, I'm your host, Michael Bassetta, signing off from Malmo. See you next year.